I would describe my upbringing as like painfully working class. I, I used to have shoes that didn't fit me, and like hand-me-downs were like the, the norm. Pleasant Kenobi is an exaggerated version of me. I don't just like randomly shout about dicks in like conversations with my friends. Well, I guess sometimes I do. I don't... As a kid, I always thought I wanted to be an inventor, but then I realized a little bit later that it wasn't science that I was into. It was the creative aspect of that, the science fiction, as it were. I dropped out and I, I, thought, I felt like a failure. I thought I'd absolutely ruined my life. I'd wasted my master's funding that I got from the government. I just, I find it very hard to quantify how the ideas come. I just get inspired by silly jokes on the internet and stuff, you know? That engagement, that high is better than any of the stress. Often it's talked about your mental health and your sanity when it comes to commenters and Twitch chat and stuff. Oh, I don't think anyone's really cracked the code, as it were. Welcome to Humans and Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 60 with Pleasant Kenobi. Vincent Chandler, aka Pleasant Kenobi, is a prolific MTG YouTuber and Twitch streamer. Before we kick off the interview, I'd like to give a few shoutouts. Humans and Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic singles and all of your top magic strategy. All the articles are free, and you can also check out amazing videos by folks like Luis Scott Vargas and Andrea Mangucci. Humans of Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live is the future of interactive magic streaming. If you're streaming magic of any kind, whether it's on Arena, Magic Online, or even Tabletop, we've got you covered. To learn more, please go to cardboard.live or follow us on Cardboard Live on Twitter. We've got you covered. I also want to give a shout out to the amazing music that is being used in this podcast. The music is by Kupla. Kupla is an amazingly gifted Finnish artist based in the UK who makes some sick beats and music to relax to. Definitely check him out on all the places you can find music. And give them a follow on Twitter at Kupla Sound. That's K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. A quick reminder to listeners of this show. The Humans of Magic book is out now on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. The book contains 12 curated interviews with some of the best magical minds on the planet. If you're a fan of this show, chances are you will really enjoy the book as well. So I would really appreciate it if you could do me a favor and consider picking up a copy. Thank you. And if you want more information about the Humans of Magic project, whether it's the book or the podcast, please visit our website at humansofmagic.com. There you'll get information about the book, the podcast. You can even subscribe to the mailing list. On the mailing list, I will be sending out exclusive content from time to time. So definitely don't miss that. Go to humansofmagic.com. All right, let's get right into it. This is Humans and Magic with Pleasant Kenobi. Everybody. Today on Humans of Magic, I am super, super pumped to be sitting down with 
genius content creator, a lover of minotaurs, and <laughs> <laughs> the man with the best beard in Magic the Gathering, if not planet Earth. So I'm sitting down here today with Vince, better known as Pleasant Kenobi. Vince, Hello. how are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you. I, I get... um. I, I get embarrassed when people talk about how, like, positively and, like, complimenting. So when you start going off about how great I am, I'm like, oh, no. But when you got to the beard thing, I was like, okay, no, I can I can take that. I do have the best beard in the Magic community. That is definitely true. Well, you've basically caught on to my strategy. I make the guests feel really, really good at the beginning, and then I take them down throughout the course of the interview. Oh, I, mean, that's I felt just, really, really uncomfortable. I thought this was I, a... It's uh... my master plan. <laughs> it's my it's my sinister plan. You've, you've caught on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Vince, how are you doing today? Whereabouts are you today? So, so I am uh, in my office in my home in uh, quite sunny old England today in the south of England. Um, I, I travel quite a bit for like uh, conventions and for a bit of content and stuff as well. But I am on a nice long, maybe forty to fifty day period of not having to travel, which is lovely. Um, and yeah, I'm sat at my computer. I've got a, a cup of uh, black coffee. I've got some water. Um, yeah, just getting ready for a, a normal work day where I'll be editing something or recording something a bit later. Obviously, I took some time out to chat to yourself about, well, the people of magic and magic and, and, and things. Yeah, I'm super excited. And I thank you so much for doing this today because I understand that you had a pretty late night last night. Do you want to tell the listeners what yeah. you were up to? So I was on the uh, the Legacy Premier League, which is uh, Julian Narb's baby. Um, it's a streaming event that he runs basically once a year to highlight and promote Legacy. Uh, this year it's even better because uh, Wizards of the Coast have got involved. A sponsor from uh, a European Magic player has got involved with some money as well. Uh, Card Hoarder are sponsoring it as well. So it's, it's getting quite a lot of backing now, which is nice to see Legacy getting the, the love and support of the wider community and Wizards itself. Um, I was in the winner bracket last night and I lost my match to Julian. I punted really hard. I, I was very tired. I'd been up for like uh, upwards of 16 hours at that point. Because I was up the, the, the early hours in the morning. I had to take my wife to the train station for something for work. So I was very tired. And I forgot that the new Khan has an uptick. And threw a game away and then lost. And was gutted. But then I did some commentary. The commentary was great. Because commentating on like high level legacy. Between some of the best players in the world. Is always good. And then I got to go to bed about uh, half past one in the morning and then get up again this morning to start doing some other editing and, and work. So yeah, it was a late night, but it was a late night that was worth it because um, the LPL and just Legacy in general is a passion project of mine. Yeah, I understand that you're a huge proponent of Legacy, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, I, I, I'm a big fan of just older formats in general. Um, I'll just not older, but uh, Magic in many forms. I'm, I'm, I'm quite uh, vocal about my dislike of the push for Standard and or standardized convict sets like uh, like brawl and stuff um i like things like actual commander legacy modern pioneer is quite exciting um i, I like vintage if you can find games because obviously the, the queues are modded and always fire as quickly as you'd like uh, I, I filmed some canadian highlander by the time this goes out i probably might have that video out some canadian highlander with um uh, ben wheeler of the north 100 podcast yesterday so yeah i'm just a big proponent of getting to play with older cards play magic in varying ways magic is such a great game but if we're just stuck grinding the same ladder of the same format forever it kind of gets dull and i think the older formats and the eternal formats offer so many different ways to approach magic which is such a fantastic game but at the same time as well legacy itself as an example it's probably purer i mean that's a weird phrase to put but you get to 
do a lot of things that you don't see in other formats. The games can be hugely interactive or over on turn zero and, and, all, and all facets in between that as well. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of all the forms of magic, really. I, uh, yeah, I like playing with all the cards that I played with as a kid or, or, or played with growing up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You're a big fan of Legacy too, right? I am a huge, huge fan of Legacy. You just out in China, is that we correct? Just had a, yeah, we just had one of the biggest events for Legacy in China, which was an actual 10K over the weekend. And it was just a blast. We just had, we had people like Julian, actually. He he actually operated the LPL from my house yes, uh, last yes. week because he was uh, without VPN access and without getting too much into it, a lot of things are blocked in China, like Twitter, Twitch, Discord. And he was basically just jumping on my computer and I was just sitting there watching him set up the LPL with Anurag, who is his uh, partner in crime with the LPL. And I mean, Anurag himself has been traveling, so he's been, he's been firing us off from hotel rooms elsewhere in the world as well. It's pretty crazy to see two people put on a streaming event from, like, different hotel rooms across the world. But I guess that's, uh, that's part of the grassroots movement almost. I know. It's just crazy that we live in a day and age where things can be truly portable because I, I know that even when you were traveling, you, you mentioned traveling extensively earlier in the year. I, I know you have been cranking out videos and doing things on the go, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I uploaded from America. I, uh, I set things to go up while I was in America. I streamed from America while I was out there. Um, yeah, I mean, the, that's, I guess we'll come to that more in a moment. That's the beauty of where we are now, is that uh, we live in a world where technology, uh, nothing, things are not like they were five years ago. They definitely aren't like they were 10 years ago, right? Like, being able to put on a production where people can watch other people play Magic 10 years ago or 15 years ago wouldn't have been possible necessarily, or not, not at all. So yeah, things have changed dramatically to allow us to do this sort of stuff. But I have a lot of respect for people who are putting on streaming events from hotel rooms. <laughs> very, very dedicated. Vince, I thought I would just start off by asking you a question that's been on my mind for quite some time. I'm just really curious about this. How did you actually come up with the name of Pleasant Kenobi? Just tell oh. me what that actually <laughs> means to you. Um, okay, so uh, the the origin of the name is quite simple. Well, quite simple. Uh, quick story. So I, I used to play a lot of walk. I, I play a lot of video games. Video games are my other big big hobby and passion, and kind of what got me into content creation. I used to play a lot of Warcraft three, and Warcraft three online when you played it had a quite uh, a robust stat system that everyone could see. You could always see everyone's win rates. So what would happen is everyone would hang out in the the, the game lobbies on Battle.net. And if you had a win rate below like 40% or you know, below 50%, you could be mocked. But below 40%, you're definitely mocked, not considered a good enough player to join conversations and chat. And there's kind of a bit clickiness. So uh, in my young caring what other people think days, I would uh, reset my account constantly to start trying to grind. I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm good enough now. I can get a, a win rate that's respectable. And then you'd lose five matches in a row when you first start out. Scrap that account, smurf and start a new one. And um, the account that I probably had the most success with, or I stuck with, or at that point I realised that I don't really care about my win rate, I guess, was the one that was called Pleasant Kenobi. Before that, I was called Pleasant Bullet, which is a name of a song by a full uh, a hardcore band, a post-hardcore band from Florida, called Poison the Well, off the album You Come Before You, um, which is an album that I was listening to at the time. I was like probably 14, 15, maybe a bit older. Um, and I was called Pleasant Bullet. The win rate on that account went south. So I was like, well, let's Smurf then. I start a new account and I look around my room and I'm like, well, Pleasant, Pleasant. And I see a copy of Knights of the Old Republic, the old classic PC Star Wars game. I'm like, oh, I, I do generally quite like Star Wars. And I think for a second, I'm like, well, Kenobi's a, 
a wise old wizard, isn't he? So I just called myself Pleasant <laughs> Kenobi, and then that stuck because the win rate was okay. And then I started my Xbox Live account. I was like, "Oh, Pleasant Kenobi will do." And then Steam, and then it just it just went on from there. Where every account I made was Pleasant Kenobi, and my my YouTube account stayed dormant as Pleasant Kenobi, where I just signed in one day to leave a comment. So my 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 my, my analytics on on YouTube, you see a massive gap of like five years where nothing happens, where it thinks I've got an account but I uploaded nothing. So I still call myself Pleasant Kenobi back then. And then eventually when I came to make content, that was the account name. I just stuck with it. And then that was how I became known when I started making videos that people cared about, I guess. So the origins are a mixture of Star Wars and post-hardcore, I guess. <laughs> so Pleasant, that's part of that was part of Pleasant yeah, Bullet. So, so the song was called Pleasant Bullet. I don't even I can't remember what the song's referring to. I still like the song on the album. The album's pretty good if you're into like um, heavier, like post-hardcore kind of music. But uh, yeah, and then I just is a portmanteau of that and Obi Wan Kenobi because he's one of my preferred Star Wars characters. One of the few Star Wars characters that's actually cool in the prequel trilogy because we all know how those films went. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't exactly go north. If you, <laughs> I guess I'll put it that way. So, are you affiliated more with the light side than the dark side? Then, um, oh, that's a weird. One. I've I've got tattoos on my right arm of the Rebel Alliance and the Imperial symbols from the original trilogy. Oh, the yin um, and the yang, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that. I couldn't decide which way to go because I think things aren't that black and white, right? But um, it's funny because people are like, but but the Empire's a fascist organization. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, they're like, I, I guess. But I don't, I don't, I don't like ideologically align with the Empire. Uh -huh. I just think they've got like cool spaceships, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, is, is Obi-Wan your favorite character in Star Wars? Oh... I mean, he's one of. It could. I could still. Be, I could be to this day be called like Pleasant Solo, uh, Pleasant Kenobi, or like Pleasant Fett, I guess. But I guess Pleasant Kenobi was the better sounding of those three. So you Han Solo, Obi Wan Kenobi, and Boba Fett are probably the three characters that resonated with me as a kid and still resonate now. And I, I quite like Darth Maul, but there's no depth there. He's just a cool guy with a cool double-edged sword and like spikes on his head the edgiest oh, he was, Star Wars he was characters. so badass i was so upset that he died at like in the movie well, that he appeared in he's just like boba fett right like boba fett had no depth to his character in the original trilogy he just showed up in two of them for like three minutes and everyone's like oh cool helmet bro so everyone like <laughs> was enamored by how he looked it was nothing to do with the character himself it's all about the aesthetics yeah yeah exactly and then from there the fans and then like the, in the extended universe and stuff have been like wow well i guess we'll we'll make comic books of this and we'll make t-shirts of this and then we'll make and then we'll expand the lore with like the old video games and now there's a movie coming out on like disney plus another movie sorry tv series coming out on disney plus about mandalorian soon so that was what boba fett did and then with darth maul though like he was cool and all the kids were enamored by his uh his visual and stylistic like um uh, uh look and then they're like oh we'll just kill him off and then not really expand on that it's it's it's, it's weird it's weird how boba fett resonated for I, I guess if the prequel trilogy was received better maybe people would uh be making darth maul prequel tv shows now and stuff yeah i mean if anything and you touched on it obi-wan is was actually still a cool character in the prequels despite everything because I, I like i like ewan mcgregor a lot and I, I i mean i loved all his movies i mean i i freaking love train spotting and some of the other things he's yeah, done yeah uh, you know he he gets he gives star wars a lot of gravitas if i if i may use that word and he was actually cool you know uh unfortunately qui-gon just kind of bit the bullet too and uh you know, Obi-Wan was just, it's just a cool dude. So I, I'm glad I think it's because we got to spend a lot of time with Kenobi, I think was the reason. Like, like there's so many good actors in that prequel trilogy. Like, like, you know, like Liam Neeson's. Oh, you mean with, with Alec Guinness? 
Oh no no! I remember the original. There was a prequel. Sorry, with the prequel trilogy. Like we we saw lots of Obi Wan's. We got time for like Ewan McGregor to say lines that are now memes. Oh yeah, but I mean, we also like saw that. a lot of Anakin. He was kind of annoying, right? Uh, yeah, but I don't think he had a good. My point was, uh, if Liam Neeson was given enough time, we might all remember Qui Gon Jinn more fondly. But Ewan McGregor was given time with the character. Meanwhile. Um, Christian, what's his name? The guy, oh, it doesn't matter. The guy who plays Anakin, not so much. The, <laughs> yeah, the performance, not so good. The dialogue, not so good. Like, there's a lot of problems with that. <laughs> exactly. So, Vince, because you're, you are you chose a Star Wars or Knights of the Old Republic reference with your name, does that also stand to reason that you're a, a fan of sci-fi or movies like that? Yeah, 100%. Like, uh, I, I guess movies used to be one, well, it still is, another uh, passion of mine. I just don't watch very many anymore because I spend all my time either making content or being tired. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like, uh, I, I, love, I love cinema. I took film studies at college. Uh, I wrote a lot about films at university. Um, and that, that extends definitely to science fiction. As a kid, I always loved uh, sci-fi movies and fantasy movies because I didn't like... Well, they were just exciting for children, right? Like, w- watching something that's uh, not got, like, swords and sorcery in it is not so exciting. Um, and then that kind of extended... Uh, throughout my teenage years of just playing video games and, and being all into that sort of stuff. So yeah, science, science fiction is a big, or was a big part of my life and still is to an extent, but I feel like I don't give it enough time. I don't watch enough. I don't I do not do enough that isn't video games and or content creation these days. That's the problem. Yeah, I mean, I can basically tell that you're so busy making stuff for other people to watch that you barely have time to watch something for yourself. But I think that's the the challenge that all content creators face, I believe. Hundred percent, and on top of that as well, like I talk about this a lot about how I don't have enough time to do the things I want to do. But I think one of the, it's not just the content creation as such, but it's the other things around it. Like I spent, I probably spend way too much time on Twitter, but like I'm on Twitter because it's part of my job because I need to keep a finger on the on the pulse or the zeitgeist or whatever term you want to use that I know or understand what's going on in magic so I can make jokes that are relevant, and <laughs> make content yes. that is relevant. But I think it's a double edged sword because. I then end up spending all this time on Twitter when I could be spending that time, I don't know, enjoying uh, this swath of uh, creative endeavors that mankind has put out. Like, I used to, as a, as a kid, I was just like, all I want to do is read and watch films and play video games and enjoy all this basically content, I guess, literature and storytelling. And nowadays, like, I'm lucky if I watch more than one or two movies a week. And uh, I never finish video games anymore. I'm always buying the next one and then never finishing them. But maybe that's just me. Maybe that's a a product of our time where everyone spends so much time on social media and so much time picking up new content, they never finish the old content, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense to me. I've already spent way too much time, way too much time today on Twitter than I should, so I, I can relate. Yeah, and like, <laughs> and the, the other thing as well, like, do, you, do you play video games? I do. I mean, my fondest video game memories were from the 90s when I actually was a kid and I could actually play video games for more than four hours without feeling like I need to shut the thing off. But yeah. I still enjoy video games to a large extent. I would say that today I'm more interested in the business of video games. So I actually read a lot of articles about how games are made right. and books on stuff. I'm really fascinated by the craft, but I don't have as much time to play video games. I, I, sometimes like, I try to watch like a little bit of like people recording walkthroughs or just watch people on Twitch, but less so hands-on myself, you know? Exactly. Like you said like uh, you don't have time, but then you spend the time either reading articles or watching other people play. So <laughs> we've, got, we've got to this point where like, I probably spend more time engaging with Twitch streamers, YouTube videos, video essays and articles than I do actually playing games themselves. And then like 
yeah, I pick up, and there's so many new releases. We always talk about this with Magic, right? But it happens with video games too. Like, I picked up Luigi's Mansion, and will I finish it? Well, po- Pokemon's out next week. I can't tear myself away from Slay, Slay the Spire. And meanwhile, I'm I'm playing a lot of Magic to stay relevant to that. So there's just not yeah. enough time in the day. But I guess maybe I'm moaning about a very, f- I hate the term, but a first world problem there, right? Like, oh, I haven't got enough time to play all these video games that get released. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make more time to watch more films and, and, and read and stuff because that's things that I used to love a lot and just have let fall to the wayside like I went on holiday recently and got to read a novel for the first time in like probably eight months yeah. um, I read this amazing book uh, I'm going to shout out here called Station Eleven which is about um, a post-apocalyptic future oh, um, I've heard so much about that have you book? heard about this? I, oh, I've heard wow. about this because it was one of the uh, highly rated novels the year it came out. It must have been maybe 2015 or yeah, it came then. out. I think it came out about three years ago. And I was basically, I'm quite a big fan of talking about science fiction, post-apocalyptic fiction. The idea of mm. like society breaks down, and then how does how does the human condition cope with that? And even more so now that I do what I do, because my job is very much dependent upon the infrastructure that we have in like current society, right? So if if the EMPs went off tomorrow, or if it, like half, like ninety nine percent of the world was eradicated through disease, my job would go out the window. And how many transferable skills do I have? You know. Right. So I ha- I've always had a fascination with this, but even more so now as I'm growing up to, to be an adult. So I was looking for like um, highly rated or, or or recommended post-apocalyptic fiction. And this Station Eleven was recommended, and it was one of the best novels I've read in the last ten years, I think. Even though I don't read as much as I, uh, as I should, but yeah, that that book is incredible, absolutely incredible. So it sounds like it's a strong recommendation from you. Yeah, like it's one of the things it talks about is lasting legacies, which I, I, I picked up this book just because it's about post-apocalyptic stuff, and then the themes ended up being really relevant about the idea of like, uh, one at some point in your life there'll be a moment where. Well, you will die, and then beyond that, there'll be a point in the future where the last memory of you is thought of by a human being. And at that point, you are then truly dead. And it's talking about this actor and whether or not his films will live past the end of the end of the society as we know it and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, these things really resonate with me as someone who's very scared of like accomplishing nothing in his life and being forgotten, you know? Oh, totally. I mean... It's it's just very human, right, to think about mortality and how people remember you when you're no longer on this earth. Because this is, I mean, it's it's deeply scary, but also it it, it it touches a nerve that we have. And you know, I I think about it too, not not all the time, but some of the time. So this sounds like a book I have to pick up. Oh, it's 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 amazing, honestly. I like uh, emotional, uh, thought provoking. Like I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, and not to make this into a book club thing, but have you read the Wool? W-O-O-L trilogy. Actually, I'm not sure if it's a trilogy. It might be more than three books, but Hugh no, Howie, no. Uh, his books? No. Okay, so it is a post-apocalyptic thing. It's sort of like Lost, where it starts off with the characters that are kind of in the pro- proverbial hatch, and they're trying to figure out what's actually happening, and it's right. it's really, really good sci-fi, and I think the author is British, he, or maybe American, maybe, maybe British living in America, but... It, it's really good too. I, I highly recommend that. So, I'll, like, I'll have to send a, you the, like a bunker the link for that later. It's, it's, okay, it's a yeah. quick read, uh, some of the books, but it's it's really good. No, 100%. Link, link that to me. I, I want to read this now. But that's the thing, I don't read enough. I don't spend enough time consuming all this fiction because I think I think fiction and narrative and literature and, and storytelling is one of the most important things that human beings do that distinguish us from, like, from the animals, right? I, I, I was an English major at uni, and, mm. or college as Americans call it, and and I kick myself every every week or month that passes where I've like not read a new book or watched a movie that affected me in some way. I'm like, 
am I really living? <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. It, but, it's know. tough, man, because I don't know about you, but I struggle with basically I feel like my attention span has just gotten a lot worse since you know I, it's been a while since I've been in uni or college too and I remember reading so many books at the time and these days I can read all kinds of different books I try to read some fiction and nonfiction, but it's hard for me honestly like even before we started recording I was trying to read a book that I picked up and it wasn't I barely made it past maybe 15 minutes and I went back on Twitter it's just it's just really hard. I don't know. I don't know if you have that I, issue. I, no, one hundred percent. And I, I, I'm gonna. I, I'm probably gonna start in the new year. I'm gonna set aside half an hour every day to just sit down and read uh, a novel that I'm progressing through because it's, it's one of the top tips I read about trying to get yourself back into reading more often or consuming more books in a year because a lot of people will pick up a book and then only read it like once or twice a week for like twenty minutes. But if you put aside half an hour every day like before you go to bed, right? It's a good way of winding down as well, not staring at a screen, not caring about social media just a half an hour, like, you know, reading a book before you go to bed. And if I put that into place, hopefully I'll get through, like, you know, uh, a dozen novels in a year at least. Uh, hopefully, hopefully. I've just also picked up Audible in an attempt at the gym to uh, get through some, like, famous novels that I haven't had a chance to read. But then but then your po- your podcast stopped me from listening to my Audible thing last last uh, <laughs> last Monday, so... <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's the thing, there's just so much content and so much, like breadth of human knowledge and and things to consume that you just can't fit it all in it's just not possible vince i thought i would start from the very beginning tell me about the early years of vince you know before (laughs) pleasant kenobi tell me about your family background where you grew up exactly and maybe even a little bit about your parents and siblings if you have any sure um okay so i might okay let's just start real from the beginning i guess my earliest earliest memory is playing uh, NES games with my dad. NES games? I don't know how the Americans pronounce it. Um, I mean, I'm not old enough for the NES to be the, the, the console at the time when I was like two or three from my earliest memory, but I think it's the console my parents had at the time because they weren't they didn't have a lot of money, so they were always getting the things a bit late. This was the original Nintendo, right? The original Nintendo. So my earliest memories is of the first house that my parents had, which was around the time that I was two before they moved to the, the house that I grew up in. Um, and just my dad playing Duck Hunt and Mario Bros, and me obviously watching and not really engaging or playing it, but that is literally my earliest memories, him and a friend of his playing these things and me being there. And then um, that's kind of... So he was a gamer, right? Before you. Yeah, my dad played a lot of games, and that's kind of like the background of why I'm so into video games and stuff now, and science fiction. My dad's a big fan of Blake Blake 7, Doctor Who, Star Trek. I watched a lot of Star Trek growing up as well. It's just another thing that I want to... I want to go back and rewatch The Next Generation and Voyager and Deep Space Nine, but how the hell am I going to find time for these, like, hundreds of hours of Star Trek? Um, so, yeah, my earliest memories of video games with my dad, and then that was kind of me growing up. My mum, too. My mum my was super into video games. She, she, we, we had a PlayStation 1 in the back room of the house that I grew up in for the longest of time, and we used to share save file on Civilization 2. So I would, she, she worked night shifts, so I would go to school, come home, she'd been playing Civ 2 during the day, and then she'd cook dinner and I'd take over. And the funny thing about Civilization 2 on the PS1, which is, I still remember to this day, is that it has huge load times because the, the processing power of the, the PlayStation couldn't cope with how much AI it had to, had to like, uh, process between turns. So turn change, I don't know if you've played much Civilization, but the, the turns I when played you end it to them, death. I played it okay, on the PC, good, but it was good. Civilization well, I, 1 and 2. Yeah, I, I, moved on to, I moved on to the PC versions for like Civ 3, Call to Power, Civ 4 and stuff, but Civ 2 on the PlayStation 1 was... Uh, um, a big part of my early life with my mum as well. But yeah, so my, all, a lot of my early memories are like playing video games with my mum and my dad or playing or uh, like not being able to complete levels. My dad would, you know, 
I'd go to bed and wake up the next day and my dad's progressed on Donkey Kong Country on the snares, for example, because he... I, I thought he was a god among men because of how he could beat these levels I couldn't. So that's a lot of my own life is like that. Um, I grew up in a relatively... This is a weird thing because I'm talking about video games and they're kind of a luxury, but I grew up in a really poor family. Um, uh, my parents don't never really had much money apart from for a short period of my life, uh, which I guess I'll explain in a second. But um, so yeah, I, I at school I, I I I never had the the latest fashion or the newest stuff apart from some nerdy things like video games. And my parents were very up for like getting me Pokemon cards and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I grew up in quite a poor family. I was I was I was not an only child. I had a brother, I, I have a brother and a sister, uh, but they were from my mother's first marriage and they're quite a bit older than me. My sister is uh, 11 years older than me. My brother's 14, if I get that correct, or 15 years older than me. So they, like, my brother had left home before I'd really like come into my own. And my sister was there in my early years, but not not much later because um, she went off, got married and moved away as well. So I grew up a lot as a, like a, like a, an only child kind of thing where all my friends had siblings, but I would get home from school and I went, to, I went to secondary school very far from home as well. So uh, like a 14 mile drive. So my parents would bring me back and I'd, I'd have no siblings. So I'd play a lot of video games on my own. I'd play a lot of um, just, yeah, a lot of video games, I guess they're, they're a, a big part of my early life. Um, what about your parents? What did they actually do? What were their occupations? <laughs> okay, so my dad is a pheasant plucker. So there is, so he's or game butcher to use a more like a uh, uh, positive or or skilled sound, skillful sounding name. I think pheasant um, plucker is actually a better name because the moment you said these two words, I can exactly figure out what he was doing. Exactly. So game butcher is kind of a lying comment. Like, I mean, he used to butcher venison and like bigger animals as well sometimes, but on the whole, he just plucked birds. He doesn't do this anymore. He's now um, medically retired, I guess is the best way to put it. But uh, So he did that, and that didn't bring in a huge amount of money. And then my mum, she lost moved between jobs a lot. She was a carer at one point. She worked in a lot of different shops and things, but she never really held down many jobs for very long because she was quite an argumentative woman who would uh, <laughs> um, lose her jobs. As, as a kid, I never really got it, but as I grew older, I was like, Mum, can you... Why are you not in this job? Oh, I had an argument with someone and I've left. Like, okay, oh, okay, we'll just say she had firm principles. <laughs> she did. She was um, tenacious, shall we say. Um, so, yeah, so there was not, not a lot of income coming in from these jobs. Um, a lot of, I had a lot of secondhand clothes, secondhand games, secondhand toys. There was a period in my life, though, which was like the, the golden years. This is a funny thing because this is... It's very illegal what they were doing, but I mean, I mean, my mom's dead now, so there's not really much they can do about that. But um, they were like, they they did a lot of pirate DVDs. They go to car boot sales or jumble sales or whatever you call them in America and Canada. Uh, gar- garage sales, jumbles. Oh, garage sales, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'd be like that with lots of cars all lined up and the boots are open. Car boot sales. Do you have car boot sales in Canada? Well, in Canada we had flea markets and we also had garage ah, sales. And maybe okay. the lingo is closer to that speed that that is yeah. which is being field, used in the UK, I don't know. I guess I guess I'll explain the, the concept. You have a field, a lot of people show up, they pay five pounds to the field owner, you pull in with the car, you open your boot, and you just sell a load of stuff you don't need anymore. So like mm-hmm. when me and my wife moved house to this one, from the flat to this house when we got our mortgage, we did a car boot sale and I just sold loads of Blu-ray and DVDs just loads of stuff just sell off yeah. stuff that you don't need anymore yeah, it's like a British sale, basically. tradition basically, yeah. yeah exactly exactly and my parents used to do this all the time I used to go to them a lot as kid. As a kid I have very fond memories of going to these things and digging through to buy like Warhammer or, or finding if you found magic cards it was very exciting or uh, video games you just you just you go just along just treasures and you find man I remember yeah. going to garage sales when I was younger because 
my background is also not we're not also from a super wealthy family or anything i would say strictly middle class and i remember we used to go hunting for board games and we we had to find the ones with all the complete pieces my brother and i would actually just play them and some of the games it was actually really fun because some of the games really sucked but some of the games were actually sort of like diamonds in the rough that's pretty cool yeah like yeah so yeah exactly that so so car boot sales were a big part of my early life because I looked forward to them every weekend. I would go with whatever pocket money I've got. I'd go with money I've got from selling my other games on the last boot set that we did to then look for more video games or, or toys or, or cards. Or as you said, board games. This is a really weird and tragic thing. Like, I'd buy board games if I found them, like Hero Quest, Warhammer Quest. Oh, um, Hero boxes. Quest was so awesome. Yeah. Exactly. But then there'd be bits missing. And also, I didn't have siblings to play with, so I'd have to try and convince my the kids from my local estate, like, anyone want to play this weird board game about wizards and barbarians? And some of them would be into it, some of them would be into it, but not get the rules and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. the point I was getting to was uh, in my middle teen- middling teenage years at secondary school, high school, as you guys called it, my parents started like um, selling pirate DVDs. They would receive them from a friend and they'd copy them up and they'd sell like basically pirated movies that weren't out yet from the cinema. Like really bad crap recordings of films. And they sold them by the bucket load, made tons of money, which was completely illegal. And there was a period of my life where, like, I, we could afford a new computer and I could play the latest PC games. And I was like, Jesus, this is this is great. But at the time, I didn't really... I understood that it was illegal, but I didn't really care. I mean, right. I have... A, I, nowadays, I don't pirate anything because, like, I, I believe in giving money to the people that made stuff, right? Even, even if there is no responsible con, um, consumption under capitalism. But... Yeah, so there was a period where I went from being this... And you said strictly middle class. Like, I would describe my upbringing as, like, painfully working class. Mm. Like, I, I used to have shoes that didn't fit me. And, like, hand-me-downs were, like, the, the, the norm. And my parents' cars were... My, my parents had a car when I was younger, when I was about 13. This is, like, in the like the noughties, right? So I'm, I'm not that old. And this car had no inertia seatbelts. It had just clip seatbelts. Mm-hmm. Which then, a few years later, became illegal to have those. So they had this old car with seatbelts that, if you were in a car crash, they'd just whiplash you and probably do more damage than good. And these cars broke down constantly. And and then, on top of all that, my parents were very bad at how they used money. So instead of buying, like, saving up and getting a slightly better car so they don't have to, like, pay for the repairs later, they'd buy the cheapest car they could, and then they'd end up spending out a fortune on repairs. So, and all of this I didn't understand as a kid. All of this I just understood that, you know, I didn't even know I was poor at the time, if that makes sense, you know. And so I started going around my friend's house at secondary school and they've got like the latest thing and, and a car that's from like this decade. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then you start to get these this inkling that things aren't quite how they seem. You know, you, there's, there's this thing I always want to talk about with my wife is that you think your parents are completely infallible and they're like, like I said, I thought my dad was a god because he could beat levels in Super Mario World that I couldn't. And then there's a there's a point everyone has in their life, and it happens at different ages for different people, where you realise that your parents can be full of shit, and they don't know what they're talking about. And you realise like, that they're oh. just people too. At the end of the exactly, day, exactly, they're human. I say they're full of shit. That's a bit harsh. They're human, yeah. and they might have they might make mistakes, and they might not know what they're doing and things. And in some ways, it's sobering. In some ways, it's tragic because it's like the innocence of youth is gone. Um, and yeah, and then when I got to college, which was like sixth form or the latter years of high school for you guys, that's when I really noticed it. Like. Uh, you know, like just pe- people were from like middle class families and stuff, and I'm like, oh, I, I, I can't afford this. Like, I'm asking my mum for some money so I can buy like a studded belt so I can fit in with the scene kids or the emo kids at college or whatever. And uh, like, right, yeah. So, so what, 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 uh, what clique did you belong to? Were you a scene kid, emo kid, or something <laughs> else? So, so at secondary school, um, I wasn't unpopular, but I was still bullied by the preppy kids a little bit, um, especially some of the guys. 
and I was part of like the alternative kids, I guess. Like I listened to a lot of rock music. I was in two bands when I was at school and college. Um, so I was oh, definitely what did you, in the what alternative. Did you play? I was a vocalist and I played a small amount of bass, but I didn't play bass when we performed because I just didn't play enough bass. Uh, so I had a bass guitar for a while. Again, uh, like a second-hand bass I'd saved. I'd, I'd saved my money for and bought from a car boot sale. Uh, meanwhile, all my friends had like Fenders and Gibsons and there's me with this like non-brand name second-hand bass guitar. And I, I remember I broke a string and couldn't afford to replace the strings at one point. <laughs> Would you say that you were a natural showman? Because it probably takes some guts to be the singer, right? yeah i guess so like um yeah i think i think i've inherited my mum's bravado like i talked about her being tenacious and happy to argue and i guess that's me as well i think i'm a lot more empathetic than she ever was so i can understand sometimes when i'm upsetting people i need to back off but um yeah that bravado and that confidence definitely comes from my mother and then yeah all my friends were really introverted like some of them i still talk to them now and they're like incredible like musical geniuses who did like maths at university and stuff and there was me, I was like, I don't understand how to play a guitar very well, but I'll stand on stage and I'll, I'll sing even if I'm not that good a singer and I'll jump around and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you mentioned a whole bunch of stuff there, but how did you find Magic initially? Like, it sounds like it was in high school, right, that you did? No, no. So so Magic, Magic I found in primary school. So I found this before I was 10. Um, so we're talking around the time of... I think Urza's Saga card. So what happened was there's this kid living on the back of my estate, uh, which my parents, my mum didn't want me to hang around with because he was a few years older than me. So let's say I was 10. He must have been 13. I mean, literally, I can't even remember how old he was. But he was considered a bit of a troublemaker because I think he smoked and he wore like a leather jacket and he just was a bad boy, right? Yeah. So my mum's like, don't hang around with him. So then when we're hanging out on the estate, people playing football or whatever, he's like, do you want to come back to my place and see my music and see these cards that i've got and like weird things i'm like yeah cool because i like looked up to this kid and then we go back to his like bedroom we're playing like i don't know i guess at this time it's probably the ps1 um no the yeah the ps1 and 64 games and he's got this like he's got a, a shelf on his wall above a poster of a half naked woman which i'd never seen at this point so he was like the real bad boy right <laughs> bad and influence like, yeah <laughs> yeah and he, and he was like he this gentleman, I won't say any names, but he, he, I think he grew up and went to like juvenile delinquency and then like went to prison for a bit and stuff. So he wasn't, he ended up on the wrong side of the track, but perhaps um, not of his own volition. Like, you know, his, his, I don't think his parents looked out for him much. But mm. um, he had all these uh, cards on the shelf, like literally a shelf with just back to back playing cards. And I was like, what are, I remember very clearly, I'm like, what are those? He's like, oh, these are magic cards. And I'm like, at this point, I've, I've played no card games. This is, um, this must be before Pokemon's come out. So we're talking like 1998, perhaps? Mm -hmm. 99, just before Pokemon like explodes into like um, popular culture. I'm like, okay, so oh, maybe a bit earlier than that. I'm like, sure, so 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 what are they? And he shows me and he, he says, do you want to borrow some? And I'm like, sure. So he gives me this stack of cards in an elastic band. And I go back to my house and I like fan them out on the floor and I don't know how to play them. I don't know what they do. I remember there's like a Sage Owl and like a Telerian airship from like Portals, um, Portals, uh, uh, the second one. What's it called? Portal Two Kingdoms? No, not Two Kingdoms. Oh, whatever it's called. And I don't know what they were. And the next day, he showed me how the game played. And I played this blue-green deck that had owls and airships in it. And I loved it. And he gave me some of these cards, like, like kindly. He told me about Denizen of the Deep. He was like, there's this powerful card called Denizen of the Deep. I don't have it, but I saw it in a, in a magazine or a friend's collection. And it's 11-11. I'm like, 11-11? What? <laughs> 
and then that that's how I got magic. And then like I I I, I must have found someone a car boot sale, and I must have been like, "Mum, I need these." So they bought them. And I remember at the time I was buying up any collectible cards I could get. So magic was the first one I saw, but. I picked up some wild cards, some Star Trek trading card game. I picked up any cards I could, and I had them all in this drawer. And uh, and then the local shop started selling them. And now, to explain something about England is that we don't have local game stores, or didn't have local game stores, should I say. So growing up, my local town didn't have a shop that you could play Magic in. There was a toy shop called um, uh, uh, Hogosaurus, or Toy Master, and they sold Warhammer and Magic and then loads of toys. Mm-hmm. And then I started being like, Mum, can I buy these packs of... I guess it was like 8th edition or something at this point, a bit, a bit later on. Um, and she's like, yeah, we'll get you one pack or whatever. And that's kind of how I got into Magic. And then Pokemon cards came in my last year of primary school and exploded and everyone had Pokemon cards. And I remember convincing my... Okay, so here's how it happened. So at, at, at primary school, we were allowed to bring in board games in the last day of um, of the of the semester or whatever, or before half term. So I would always bring in either like this basic Dragon Quest board game and everyone would want to play that. Like people were really excited to play this like basic D&D or I'd bring in Magic. And then Pokemon came out and everyone would play Pokemon instead. And I was genuinely gutted because I bring my Magic cards in. A couple of my kids had bought some Magic cards in this toy shop in the local town. And no one wanted to play Magic anymore because people wanted to play Pokemon cards. And I was gutted. But I managed to convince my school that Venusaur was more rare than Charizard because uh, there's three kids with Charizards in my school and I had a Venusaur. So it's like, mm-hmm. well, obviously, look, 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 logic. There's one Venusaur to three Charizards. It's got to be rarer. And these kids were like, oh, it's got a point. So even <laughs> at that point, I was influencing people about like what was rarer and how we should approach the game. So yep. um, yeah, that's how I got into Magic was through this kid. Uh, and then, yeah, I didn't go to my first F&M until like if Eventide came around when I went back to Magic to play at, at college with my friends. Okay, so it was it was after college that you reconnected with the game. Yeah, so... So college for me is not uni- college for you guys, right? Like uni is what I call college. This is all the confusing terminology. So when I'm like 16, 17, my friends and I are looking for things to play where we can have a beer at my friend's house where his mom's like, you can have one beer each and just hang out, like six of us at a table. Because um, we can't play six people playing, uh, I guess at this time, like Halo or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So we, I, I introduced them to magic cards. Now, oh, this is pretty cool. And it turns out one of them already had some cards when he was a bit younger as well. So we all start buying these cards. And this is around, like, this is re- this is original Ravnica block. So we're all buying these pre-cons and these boosters. And, um, and this is, e- I think eBay existed at this point. So, is that right? Was it yeah, right? it no, should have existed yeah, in the right. late 90s. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember shortly after I started collecting Future Sight, obsessively trying to get the whole set. So, um, no, it's not, the Ravnica's not late 90s, is it? Isn't that early noughties? I'd have to look it up. Yeah, uh, we're probably getting the chrono. Yeah, the, eBay was probably around. Yeah. It might even be that the sets weren't even in date. It might have been that we were buying sets from this toy shop because they didn't have the latest stuff because England was so behind the times. Mm, yes, but, behind um, the curve a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I remember I had this. I had the Rat's Nest pre-con from Kamigawa from like a couple of years before this, and it had a Jitte in it. And we played six people at a table. We all had these decks. Uh, one of my friends had bought a Dark Steel, um, a Blight Steel, no, a Dark Steel Colossus and a Chroma, and slammed it into his like his twenty land deck and never cast them. <laughs> yeah, and, of course. And I was winning all these games because I had an Umazawa's Jitte, which is obviously absurd, but I didn't understand that you could do anything at instant speed. So I was using a Jitte at sorcery speed in my turn and still wrecking everyone because <laughs> we just didn't understand the rules very well. And so we played a lot of this and then a couple of years go by and we get to like, um, past, we get past Future Sight. I'm collecting obsessively. This is when I meet my current partner, my wife, and I'm buying these packs and cracking them. Um, 
And she's like, what the hell are these things? Like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a nerdy thing I do. And then um, we're, we're, I, I say to the guys, like, look, there's these events down in Southampton, which is a bit of a trek. We have to drive down there. And only one of our friends drove because we were young. Uh, and we can go and draft. And like, what's a draft? Like, well, we get to pick cards on the fly and build a deck as we go. And they're like, cool. So we drive down. We go to a sealed event for Eventide. And that's where I met a load of people who told me about the, the tournament scene and what standard was. And, and then I was in deep. I was in real deep. And then at university, where I was poor, I dropped out around New Phyrexia again just for a little while uh, because I uh, just didn't have the money. From, no, from Rise of the Eldrazi to New Phyrexia. And I came back, and then I've been in it ever since, playing Commander and, and Standard and then moving on to like Modern and Legacy and stuff. Okay, so let, let's talk a bit about university. So you, you picked uh, English major, is it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I studied... Tell me why you decided on that. So I, I studied English literature and American literature. Um, because I think I've touched on a bit, quite a bit already. I, I, I have a very strong belief that like uh, that the arts is what separates us from the animals. It's what give it allows us to understand who we are and deal with what you know the human condition and such. Uh, as a kid, I always thought I wanted to be an inventor. I was always like, oh, I want to create like the next like teleporter from Star Trek or Tricorder or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But then I realized a little bit later that it wasn't science that I was into. It was the creative aspect of that, the science fiction, as it were. So I was like, I don't think I want to be a scientist to like strive to create a teleporter. I want to write about those things or or all that sort of stuff. So like English at high school became like my favorite subject. Um, I started. I, I wrote a little bit creatively behind the scenes and stuff. And then I was like, okay, I'm gonna. I lo- I love English. I lo- I lo- I like reading and I like films and I want to teach these things and and then maybe write a novel in the background. That was my aim. So from about the end of high school through college and university, I was like, I'm gonna become a teacher. So I did my English literature and American literature degree. I started a PGCE to become a teacher, a postgraduate certificate of education, which allows you to become a secondary school or high school teacher. And halfway through that, I realized that I hated it. It was stressful. Uh, I didn't actually really enjoy working with the kids. I had to really mute who I was. I couldn't swear. I had to hold back. Um, I got told. I got told and reprimanded a little bit for being too open with the kids about like what I do outside of school, like magic, for example. Um, so I dropped you out mean halfway. Reprimanded th- for just telling them about a game like magic. <sighs> not, not telling them about magic per se, but like opening up at what I do. Like I play video games and I play magic oh, and stuff. And they're I like, see. like you didn't like, keep it strictly academic. Yeah, there was said. I think I think one of the teachers explained it to me is like you can do that but you haven't built the rapport yet. And I'm like, well, how do I build the rapport without opening up to them about how I know yeah, what it's like a catch Minecraft 22. is? Yeah, it's, exactly. Catch-22 being one of my favorite novels, with it. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <Mine> so, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that book. I love it. Um, so, yeah. So, I actually dropped out of my PGC. So, I went to university to study English. I absolutely loved it. I loved academia. I loved writing essays and critical analysis and literary analysis. I came out with the first. So, I got the highest um, possible grade for my degree which I was very proud of. Most of my friends managed two ones at best. I was one of like five people in my year, my intake that got the first. Um, super proud of it. Like left, I went to the University of Hampton for my PGCE, which is like one of the best ones for the English PGCE in the country. And then I realized, uh, shit, I don't think I like this. At the time as well, like in British politics, uh, Michael Gove was the education minister and he was ripping apart like, the pension system and everything for teachers as well. So I'm there stressed tearing my hair out. I came home crying one day from like my PGC work to my wife from my replacements um, and I'm like oh and also at the meantime they're like ruining the pension system so I'm working towards this job that looks like it's getting ruined by the government as well and eventually I was like you know what I need to cut my losses and I just before before Christmas hit I was like I don't want another year's worth of um, funding to go on my student debt so I'm going to cut my losses and drop out and I dropped out and I, I, thought, I felt like a failure I thought I'd 
absolutely ruined my life. I felt like I'd I'd done uh, English at college, English university. I'd wasted my master's funding that I got from the government on a PGCE that then I d- didn't complete. So I couldn't go back and do a master's now unless I paid for it myself, like out of pocket, not from a, from a loan. So I, I felt like I'd really just messed everything up and it was probably one of the lowest points in my life. It was a big part of your identity and you put yourself all in yeah. into this profession, right? Into this field. Yeah, I thought I could influence others to enjoy the arts as much as I did. To enjoy not just literature, not just books, but like narrative and storytelling and what those things allow us to explore about ourselves. And I thought that was a really, I don't know, to sound a bit pretentious, I felt, well, I guess I sound very pretentious on this whole thing, but I felt like that was a really admirable cause. And then I realized that I wasn't cut out for it and I wasn't good at it. And yeah, it was very, very, it was hard. It was very, very hard. My wife was very supportive. She was like, just, just drop it. And then I had this period where I was unemployed it's the only period of my life where I've been truly unemployed. I didn't have a job, and I was like, I'd better start looking. And that's when I found a job at the bank. <laughs> okay, so tell me how that job went at the bank. Ugh, okay, so I drop out of this PTCE thing, and I'm scrambling to find a job, and I get a job in the lending call center for an English bank called NatWest. Where what I do is I'm on the I'm on the phones when you ring up to for inquiry. The point is to essentially upsell is to identify where people might be in their overdrafts or might be struggling with money a little bit and then oppose solutions to them like why don't you consolidate this into a loan why don't you use a credit card because it's a lower rate of interest there there were benefits to what we were doing for the customers and stuff but most human beings don't want to be talked to about lending when they've called up to ask a query so it was a grueling job so i I didn't hate it hate it because sometimes you help people sometimes you someone was paying like huge amounts of interest across multiple debts you're like you can just consolidate this and pay less and they're like oh didn't know that and you you sort them right out and they're happy and they like say like i've you know you've done them a solid you fixed them up for christmas or whatever but uh yeah being in a call center taking incoming calls basically aiming to invert commas upsell to like products and stuff is just it is not me and I really didn't like it. And I was there for a year. And that's when I started my YouTube um, uploads. So when I was there, I was like, I hate this. This is not me. What can I do? And I was like, oh, I can, I can write. I, I can write. So let's write about video games. So I started writing for a website called Valetics.com, um, which is a friend's website from university. We got invited to some press junkets and stuff. We got to go to Eurogamer for free and got to go to the Saints Row premiere release and stuff, which is cool. So we got a little bit, a small amount of traction. And I was writing for that website, but the problem was no one was really reading it. As much as like we had we had like these invites and stuff, no one was reading it. And then eventually, I was like, "Why don't I make videos about it?" Because people watch videos, right? And then the videos did better. And eventually, I was like, "Well, I'm playing a lot of Magic. Maybe I should just talk about Magic." And then my first Magic video did a lot better than any of my video game videos did. And I was like, "Ha." Huh. Okay, so you started off making non-magic videos, video game videos. Yeah, there's still some on my channel, just really bad reviews of of indie games and stuff. And it's all an attempt to get out of that bloody call center. (laughs) I gotta gotta dig into this a little bit because... Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a couple of things you touched on, but you were already married at this point. So you mentioned meeting your wife initially when in social setting we're at school. Is that Yeah, what I, was? I, I wasn't married at that time. I met her at my college, so a sixth form, the, the latter years of high school for you guys. I was like 17, about to turn 18 when I met my wife. Um, mm-hmm. And we met, in, we met in a communications and social studies class, which was a class about, um, well, exactly that, communications and social studies. It sounds like... Um, it sounds like a like a like some people describe it as like a an easy pass. We all failed our first year because our teacher was useless and uh, left <laughs> the college. So it wasn't that easy. But that was the first time I ever heard heard the word meme because we talked about mimetic um, social narrative in this class. Oh. This, so this is ahead of the time before. So um, Susanna, who was my lecturer there, 
Um, I haven't seen her for years, but she was talking about memes before memes were a thing. It was uh, cool. But anyway, that's where I went with my wife in that class. As I failed my first year, come back. So I was this cocky second year kid and I met my wife in that class. And uh, What was it like, man? Did. Was it like attraction at first sight, meeting your future wife or what? Yeah, I, f- I fancied the pants off of her. I did this thing. So I've always, I'm a very loud and outgoing person. So I walked into this room. I was like one of the two kids who had failed the first year and come back to this in the second year. And my wife was a, a, a fresh new year. She was a year behind me I could, uh, in school. And um, I went around the class like, giving people nicknames so I could know people as we were all like, sort of chatting before the class started. And I skipped, I skipped her because she was quiet, a bit introverted, and I really fancied her. Like, I didn't like physically attracted to her. And I, I was just, that made me shy and not able to like give her a nickname or, or point to her and talk to her because I was trying to get the class to introduce themselves and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was how I first met her. And then through a mutual friend that she happened to work with in a part-time job, uh, she, uh, she gave me her number. This girl was like a... Uh, Steph wants you to have a number. And I was like, oh, that's that's really cool. And then uh, we started texting and then things hit off and stuff. And we're still together to this day. So That's amazing. Well, belated congrats. I mean, how, how long did it take <laughs> you guys to actually get married after initially dating? Uh, wow. So we've been together like, what, 11, 12 years right now? Which I'm only 21, don't forget. It's the huge huge congrats, <laughs> man. I, I know. You guys met when you were 10. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then... Um, uh we've been married no now. no judgment <laughs> we've been married three years so uh okay. just this september we've been married three years so, um so yeah it took us a while we weren't in any rush our plan was always to marry buy a house have kids and then we end up buying a house marrying and then we haven't had kids yet that, that's that's a future thing perhaps. you have a very adorable dog though i've seen we that. do we I've have the, the cutest dog. dog in the world little brucey my, my baby dachshund um yeah so yeah he's he's our baby for now he's enough responsibility that's awesome so Okay, so that was one area I wanted to get into. And then the other part was, I mean, you had been doing things like writing and expressing yourself creatively for a large part of your life before you started working at the bank. And the bank thing is not exactly that. But I do want to know how you ventured into video because like, I I feel like you undersold that because I feel like for someone who's a writer, like, you know, I like to write things as well, but to go from that into video, it's actually not that easy because you actually have to figure out, okay, how to actually create this video? How do you, how do you create this agreed, narrative? Agreed. So, so, so how, how did you, yeah. what was so, your method for that? So I was writing a lot of video, I was writing a lot of uh, reviews and articles and the articles were a little bit more, um, but this is pre-Gamergate, bearing in mind, I was talking about how... Um, oh yeah, this is I, pretty I, far back. Yeah, so I, I was writing about things like um, uh, the representation of the father figure in modern video games, like pertaining to like The Last of Us and Bioshock, and I was talking about um, rape as a catalyst and how I don't necessarily agree with that in the Tomb Raider reboot. It's around that time I was, I was writing these things, mm. and um, I thought I was writing some good stuff, but no one was reading it and no one was engaging with it. Really, we got we get a very small amount of like um, uh, traction, and then I basically I watched a lot of YouTube, and I still do to this day. And I was like, well, you know what? I think I need to, I need to, I need to make some videos of this stuff. And immediately the videos, I got a tangible feedback loop, right? So I, mm-hmm. I put out this review of like a little independent game called Tiny Barbarian DX. And the video was bad. Like really, I rewatched it literally a few days ago and then put it on private. Cause I, I said to myself, I'll never hide my embarrassing <laughs> videos. But I'm like, yeah. to be honest, if someone finds my channel through that, they're not, not going to click through to anything else. I got to think of it as a business in some ways. Hey, well, if you're not embarrassed by your early work, then you're not trying hard enough, right? Exactly, I agree. But I always thought I, I can be embarrassed, wear it on my sleeve and own it. But now I'm like, actually, I want people to click through and watch more other stuff. So um, <laughs> that video was terrible, but it got like 100, 200 views, which is really good for a first video because I see people who struggle to get like that. 
And yeah. I was like, wow, that and that that was like an endorphin kick, right? Take all these likes you get on Facebook or whatever. That was a real endorphin kick. I was like, there are three hundred people that have watched this across like a, a, a two week period. That's amazing. And then I made a stupid video about Rust, which was just a comedy video. But they were like, they were really bad because I didn't know what I was doing. I downloaded like a free trial of Movie Studio, like fourteen or at the time probably eleven or whatever, and like just fumbled my way through editing. But it wasn't that hard to teach yourself. Um, and that's how I started it. it. Was just the first one was I wrote a review, recorded it into a microphone, and just chopped footage over it. And the sound levels were all off. You couldn't hear me over the music because I didn't know how the sound mixing worked. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I guess I've... Because, I mean, I talked about wanting to write and be like a teacher and stuff, but like we used to... So here's the thing I brushed over. I, I, we're bouncing around a lot. I'm sorry. But like um, at secondary school, a friend of mine had a camcorder and we used to like film stupid videos in the woods of like... We once got like 30 of our friends together and just filmed like a battle scene in the woods and it was awful and it was stupid. But we wanted to be like... um. Uh, what's the CKY film? Is it Haggard? Oh, what's it called? Oh, I can't remember what it's called. But we wanted to emulate those filmmakers are just making absurd, stupid comedies that, you know, gross-out comedy stuff. Sure. So I'd already done some of that earlier, but I never did any of the editing. I just held the camera and talked about ideas. So yeah, my first ever editing was editing together a review of this tiny barbarian game, and it kind of came naturally in a way, because I think it's relatively intuitive if you understand, like, how a... How a, how a I don't know if I'm underselling it again. I don't know if I'm making it sound easy. <laughs> No, you're not at all. That I'm just curious. I'm just fascinated by this part because, you know, going from how did you go from that to going into the magic videos? Because it sounds right. like the video so, game videos were moderately successful already. They're, they're okay, and like the views died off for some things. I think I think I was doing things that people cared about at the time. I did some review for some other shooting game that got like eighty views, for example, and I was like, oh, okay. And then my first ever thousand view video was me. My, I think it was my first rant to a camera. I put a camera in front of me. Gamergate happened. Or the beginning of Gamergate happened. Where mm. Zoe Quinn was being accused of sleeping with some journalist. And it was called the Five Guys Instant or whatever. Or Five Guys. And I just I just ran into this camera for like uh, 15 minutes of like... Um, how we shouldn't give a shit what other people are doing with their personal lives. Like who cares if she's sleeping with these people. People meet in offices and workplaces around the world and have sex. It's a very adult and human thing. Grow up. Mm-hmm. I edited this video down to, at the time, YouTube didn't care about te- the 10-minute thing, so I edited this down to, like, a 7-minute thing, put it up, and I got, like, a 1,000 views in one day, and then I got comments of, like, people telling me to go kill myself and stuff, and I was like, wow, I guess I've touched a nerve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then I got back to, like, doing all sorts of just varied stuff, like, we had a chicken nugget challenge and open kinder eggs. I was just mucking about on YouTube, and I found it as, like, a nice creative outlet, and people that I worked with who watched them, so they were really funny. There's a video that I've re-uploaded recently where I open a kinder egg, like a kinder egg toy opening video, but I found a bag of cocaine. And it's one of my, and I think that's ruined the punchline of the video now, but I'm very proud yeah. of that video, how I build up to it, and I think it's funny, and my co-worker's like, this is hilarious. I can't believe you're not getting more than like 300 views or whatever. So that was all happening. Gamergate was an obvious one. I made a video about um, the boob jiggling physics in Dead or Alive as well, and that got a thousand views. Like, okay, looks like you can pander to certain like topical things, right? Mm-hmm. And then I started recording uh, leagues of MTGO Modern with Death and Taxes, because the deck was like £40 to buy at the time, because Aether Vials were dirt cheap after a reprint in Modern Masters 1. Uh, of me and my friend Rob, who's now still comes on my streams on Monday nights to, to co-host and be with me and stuff, of us just chatting as we play through it, and the, the mic quality is terrible, there's a hissing throughout the whole thing, but they're still up on my channel because they're like a nice time capsule, not only for me, but for Magic at the time as well. 
And they got a little bit of traction. People commented saying, what do you think of this card? Or what do you think of that card? So I started making more and more of those. Some paper gameplay as well. I filmed me and my friend playing like Twin versus Jund and Amulet versus something else. So I was getting really into modern at this time. And I was grinding at this time a little bit. I was going to, I would look at the calendar on, on manalink.com for like English events and anywhere I could travel to within like a three hour radius, I'd go to play a PTQ or whatever when I could fit it in. Even though I worked some Saturdays because of the call center job and, and then I moved mm. to the, a branch and stuff. Uh, so I was grinding a little bit, making magic videos. And then one day, I I joked in a car on the way home from a PTQ about uh, Bane firing for a huge amount off of the back of doubling it off of Pyromancer's Goggles, I think it was. No, 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 the, the original joke was um, Blasphemous Act with a Stuffy Doll in play. And we're all laughing about it, and we're all like riffing on it, me and like three or four other friends who've gone to this PTQ and all scrubbed out. And we found it very funny. And then, like, about a month or so later, I, I buy the cards on Modo and the cheapest possible version of the deck. It's like a £10 deck. And I film it. But I, 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 I film it, and I'm not happy with, like, the audio of me talking over it, if I remember correctly. So what I do is I go back watching the footage, and I write down the highlights. And then I refine the highlighted written-down stuff to be a bit, like, sharper. I record that again. I then take the footage, stick the audio over it, and chop it up to be over that scripted audio. And I release mm-hmm. it. And this is the first video that gets to like three or four thousand views. I think it ended up maybe at ten. No, no, it couldn't have been that high. I'm probably misremembering hugely here. But like, I started getting. I had push notifications on my phone for any comment, subscription, or whatever. And I put this video up, and I think I put it on Reddit, or someone put it on Reddit. And I sat down with my wife to watch some TV downstairs, and my phone started going off, like as in like I, I must blowing up right yeah. yeah kind of blowing up like I, I mean now I'd probably I'd probably look back and be like that's not blowing up I guess compared to some of the stuff I guess now but at the time I was like it's every like few minutes there's a comment and my wife's like what's going on with your phone who's that this time about <laughs> I'm like it's YouTube comments she's like oh that's weird so this video Mono Red Tron was the birth of what it is my channel now where this formula had worked so well I was like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna do that again so I did it again and again and again I refined it over time and but the thing is recording yourself playing a league then watching the league back and writing down notes then editing that into a script adding jokes and finding references then editing that all together takes upwards of like at the time i think it's taking me 20 hours now even now i think it takes me upwards of 11 to 15 to do one of those Mm -hmm. so i was doing one of those a week but it really helped me to gain traction and nowadays that was my bread and butter before but I don't. I do them like once every week, every other week now, because I want to make other stuff and I want to vary things. I don't want to be a one trick pony. Uh, but those things are intense and they take it out of me. And sometimes I'll lose a load of games. The deck will be crap. All the jokes aren't landing. I'm like, well, now I'm just grinding eleven hours for a video. I don't think it's any good. So, yeah, that was how much transition to magic happened. Casual. Let's play some some mono white death and taxes through modern. And then I, I, I overdubbed some silly jokes over a silly meme deck. Uh, a modern Tron deck that fired Blasphemous Act at someone's face for 36 damage on turn 5. That's what I love about your video. Sorry to interrupt, but that's okay. what I love is that you work really hard to make it look easy, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. the video just flows really well. I mean, I'm looking at some of the modern incarnations of, you know, it wasn't the mono red Tron, but every few seconds there's something going on. There's something that I can laugh at. And I think people, I think people probably understand, but not everyone understands that there's a ton of work that goes into making that entertaining throughout. Because a typical game of Magic Online, let's face it, it's not super entertaining. Like you're just watching so th- the guy that, exactly. play that, that, lots that, of that was that was my mission statement originally. Like I, I won the Monoretron thing. I was like, why don't I try and make this 
different so this is the thing like i was like let's make this different to other content like i watch saffron olive and i love it because he's he's charismatic right and there's a mm-hmm. few other content creators i watched as well so saffron mm-hmm. olive and, and magic man sam are like the two biggest influences in the magic community for me but i was like i don't want to be like them i want to be different so that's why i did this like hyper edited thing and it was very different to what anyone else was making and still no one's really imitated that to an extent um, with all the cutaways and the jokes and sometimes like sometimes the videos don't even make sense like i'm not the focus isn't even <laughs> the magic sometimes it doesn't have but, to it's about entertainment right but the problem is with it being my bread and butter it's that when someone comments on a new video like cause i do a lot of different varied stuff stream vod's slower plays uh mm. rants um all sorts of stuff you've had when a few comments, high quality rants yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and when people comment in the comments or on twitch when i'm streaming saying where's the next meme gameplay video i feel huge amounts of guilt that i'm not doing that because in some ways i've built my my success and my patreon and my community around these videos and then Mm -hmm. when i don't supply what i assume people want i feel like pangs of guilt like real guilt and i've been told i've been told since then not to worry about this because obviously as as my viewership grows and i make different videos different people want different things Mm-hmm. but uh, every time someone says oh where's the last one of those and the funny thing is someone will say where's the last one of those and sometimes because of how bad youtube can be i'm like oh i put it out four days ago and they're like oh cheers they haven't even seen the notification <laughs> for it it was just buried somewhere yeah yeah but those videos take a lot out of me to make and mm-hmm. and content creation isn't just filming a video and sticking it up on the internet right a lot of people do that and those ones don't do very well it's a, no a lot the, of, the reason why i also you know, like some of your videos is because if i'm if i may use a very lofty term it feels like structured chaos. It, it, I can tell <laughs> that there's a lot of craft that goes into it, but then the end result is that it looks deliberately like fast cuts and memes and jokes yeah. every few seconds, but it, it's actually really hard to make something look like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how... I'd probably sound, anyone watching this or viewing this, I'm sorry if I sound incredibly pretentious with all the, the shit that I keep saying, but I sometimes with some videos, I'll have like a narrative arc okay so mm-hmm. like there was a video that i made about modern horses well we're being self-indulgent now we're talking about how how great i am and i'm cool with it uh, <laughs> it's okay mo- modern horses was a deck where people were joking about it on reddit like is horse tribal a thing now when all the horses got released in like m19 or whatever it was and i was like mm-hmm. cool let's do it so i made this modern horses video and the, the gameplay sucked I, I won one in six games that i played but i beat mm-hmm. burn and burn was the, f- the first match i played but what I did was, like, I, I decided that I'm going to hype up this deck to no end and claim it's the best thing that's ever been in modern, and I've broken the modern meta game. But it's got some slightly sketchy matchups. And then I'm going to put the win at the end. So as we keep losing, like, the win will feel more earned. Mm. And then I, I, so I restructured where the games were in the pacing of the video. And at the end, when we win, I'm like, see, I told you. I told you this deck has got the best burn, because it had the best burn matchup in the format, because it had, like, 15 cards that gained life and stuff, right? Mm. And... The whole point was that, all the point I'm trying to make is that I'd gone out of my way to form a narrative and decided to like, restructure even with the flow of the games to fit that narrative because that's what made the video more entertaining and more cohesive whole and more of a narrative. And I've been accused recently in some comments of like, oh, it's obvious that game two was before game one because you mentioned Burn or whatever that I played against. Mm-hmm. And I replied saying, yeah, full transparency. Sometimes I move them around if I think it flows better. Because ultimately, I'm not here to... I'm not a content creator you watch to learn huge amounts about how to win the new standard metagame or whatever, right? Like, I have some insight about some eternal formats, but on the whole, I'm here to entertain and enjoy magic and hopefully help other people to be entertained and enjoy magic. So sometimes, yeah, I I, 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 I twist the narrative, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's not meant to be a documentary, right? It's, no, exactly. Even documentaries have a narrative arc to them. 
I mean, that's that. Yeah, in the in the current age of media, like every documentary on Netflix has all got like an agenda or a twist, right? Like, um, making a murderer, or the little, you know, that 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 show is famous for like uh, completely twisting a, a real world event to make it more dramatic, right? Yeah. So Vince, I want to ask too how how does your creative process look? Because I know that you're putting out quite a number of high quality videos like every couple of days you're just you just seem to me from the outside like somebody with just this mountain of ideas all the time you know like how how do you how do these ideas percolate in your mind and translate into the actual videos or the narratives or the scripts can you describe your your process um unsure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm constantly, I am a full-time content creator now. I have been for uh, just under a year. and Yeah, like do you time, sit down with a notepad and just write stuff down? Like, no, just... no, no. So I, I wanted to create more of a structure because I thought, you know, there's certain things I think can improve my workflow and make me like succeed better, right? Like get more sleep, drink more water, do some exercise and create a rhythm and a structure in my life. And every time I try to structure myself, I absolutely mess it up. Like I'll, I'll set aside time to do X and I'll end up doing Y or something will get in the way. So... As much as I wish I had a clear workflow, I don't. I guess I get ideas and inspiration from dumb things. Like, I've got a video that I need to edit up still where... Well, I mean, my, my, my community is the, the source of influence at the moment. Like, uh, I have a call once a week with my highest patrons to discuss deck ideas and take lists from them. And one of them told me how he had lent a modern Boggles deck to a friend and they'd 5 would their legacy F&M. So I was like, I can do that. So, so I've got a video coming out <laughs> where I play modern Boggles. And I went 4-1. I almost 5 would with it through a legacy yeah. league. Um, so the influence comes from all sorts of places, really. And like, honestly, I find that a very hard question to answer because I don't know. I just, I get an idea and then I'm like, right, let's, I've got a notepad where I write down ideas and there's ideas that have been on there for months that I haven't come to realize, but it's just small tidbits of inspiration, I guess. And then I form them up by playing the games of magic. But I also, I'll get an idea. I'll put a deck into Mana Traders. I'll rent it. I'll play it on Modo. And then I'll not enjoy the games, I'll hate it, or I have nothing funny to say, so I just scrap it. That happens a lot as well. And that's the probably the biggest consumption of my time is when I scrap stuff, you know? So I'm really sorry I can't give you a definitive answer because I just don't know. Um, I'm a bit scatty. Let I'm me try scatty. to rephrase it a little bit. So you strike me as someone who has a lot of ideas in his head. I'm going to assume that not every single idea becomes a video, like a one-to-one. Sure, so sure. maybe another way to ask the question is, how do you narrow down like okay this is actually going to be something that becomes a video versus let's just throw that one away um so originally it used to be that i would do the things that i thought were funniest to me and that Mm -hmm. tended to resonate with similar nerds you with similar pursuits and interests i hate to say it but i think now over time i've let the algorithm and the need to like hit the viral notes overtake that a little bit so i will put things on the back burner where I'm like, actually, you know what? A pioneer deck of this style would be better than a legacy deck of that style. So I think I'm... I care too much about the pulse of the current magic conversation now, I guess. But um, again... I When I you think... say algorithm, you mean like YouTube and what? Yeah, yeah. So like... Ex- exactly, exactly. So when I say algorithm, to explain that, it's like, I, I'm a slave to the algorithm. So I don't know how many YouTubers you have on this podcast. You get quite a few streamers and stuff. Um... Streaming, obviously, you need to know what people want to watch. But with with YouTube, you need to know what YouTube's going to recommend. So Mm -hmm. I put out a video this week, for example, which was a minute and 15 seconds of, like, elk footage, 
with like noises and grunts. <laughs> and there's a super cut of the word elk out of a nature documentary that I cut together where it's like 15 seconds of just the word elk over and over and over. There's a bit where they mention about how elk fights are called brawls and it happens once a year. So I was like, that's funny. Let's use that. Mm-hmm. So I put this all together and I think that video is a quality video. So I put it out. But I know for a fact, I got told by another YouTuber I won't name that I can't, for lack of a better term, shit post like that too much on YouTube because YouTube hates it. If your videos aren't over 10 minutes... And if your video doesn't, if it's a session ender, if it's a video that someone watches then closes YouTube, they note their session ending videos and that's not a thing they want to promote. So there's things you have to be aware of that YouTube will recommend because all of my success or the vast majority of my success, should I say, I, I attribute to the YouTube algorithm. So when when people watch that Mono Red Tron video for like 30 minutes and watch it from start to end, YouTube's like, this video will get people to stay on the site for 30 minutes and people are clicking, and a lot of people are clicking the, the side links on the right-hand side to other videos after that. So they then recommend my video in the sidebar of other magic videos, whether it be community Oh, so it's a virtuous cycle. They're like, I'm going to heavily promote this Mono Red video because this is helping people stay on YouTube. Exactly. So I've got to constantly be aware of that, where I know that elk video, its watch time isn't high enough for YouTube to, the algorithm to be like, that's a video we need to promote. So it, it didn't do as well. And I said this in my Discord, I'm, I'm releasing this, and people said, this is the video we, we pay you money to make, this is so funny. And I was like, I know, and I enjoy it, and I love it, and it's the sort of stuff mm-hmm. that I want to make for the most part, but I can't all the time, because YouTube will just bury me. And if you look at like my traffic numbers, the vast majority is from the recommended tab. Like, like 50% of my views come from the recommended tab and stuff like that. Well, I'm getting recommended on other people's videos because my videos are what YouTube want people to watch. Oh, you so, mean people walk into your video because they they were watching something else. Yeah, they were watching another fa- big YouTuber and my stuff got recommended because YouTube's like, people will stay on the platform if they watch Vince's 30-minute um, meme play of Mono and Blue Minotaurs or whatever. So I'm constantly having to moderate my own creative juices in a way. It's it's kind of almost like selling out, right? And it's the same thing. Like I want my I want to make my video titles puns. I would love to release a video where the, the description is just like the word elk and nothing else, because it purifies the the meme, I guess. But yeah. if I do that, I'm screwing myself over for search engine optimization, and again right. for the algorithm. So everything I do has to appease this like this magical entity that YouTube doesn't even explain fully, which then can change. Don't forget the algorithm changes every other day. There's always news of how it cares about something else now, or people aren't getting it. Like, so yeah. Um, I wouldn't even say that's selling out. I think it's just being smart because if you don't have people coming into your videos and your channel, then there's no hope of them ever even seeing some other video that you wanted them to see. Like the, the first step is get them in the door, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, your original question was like, how do I come up with ideas? I think what I guess to summarize, um, I'm incredibly scatty. I'm very bad at organizing my thoughts, <laughs> um, but I'm okay once I got a thought down and I'm like, I'm editing and stuff like, and I can I can write out a script and structure that way. But how I come to those things, I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to sound like some sort of mad genius. That is not what I'm trying to do. I just, mm-hmm. I find it very hard to quantify how the ideas come. I just get inspired by silly jokes on the internet and stuff, you know? Right. So something else I also want to ask you is your voice. Because, you know, through this entire conversation and talking to you, I, I love it. You know, we, we talked face-to-face in the past. We talk now. And you seem very genuine. You're the same kind of person. I feel like you have a very similar voice to what you have in your videos and even your tweets. How would you say you developed your your voice like is pleasant kenobi vince like is pleasant kenobi something that grew into a persona like how would you describe that i think okay so i I think 
Pleasant Kenobi is an exaggerated version of me. So I don't just like randomly shout about dicks in like conversations with my friends. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess sometimes I do. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I believe that mediating personas make sense. Right, uh-huh. so like yeah. one of the things I tell uh, Brian, the professor who I have a podcast with, who's like the biggest magic YouTuber in terms of subscription count, is that initially yeah, he's the biggest I'd, there is, yeah, yeah, and I didn't get him, and I didn't like some of his content initially when I first started watching his stuff because I, I was like, wow, it seems a bit stuffy. But then as you watch more or get to see like other videos with him in, you realize that actually he's mediating himself, and there's a bit of irony to his persona and stuff. So he's quite mediated in that sense he's still an honest person he's still like very similar to what he is but he's more mediated than i am shall we say mm-hmm. where i guess mediated personas make sense because they allow you to um uh, moderate what you're saying create a brand and a voice and such but i guess my my logic early on was that if i mediate heavily how can i consistently keep it up without burning out because you have to like act all the time right so I now have come to this conclusion, and I don't know if it was at the beginning or over time, that the the closer I am to the voice of President Kenobi, I guess, is that um, I don't have to pretend. So my, my personal politics align with what I say on the channel. Uh, my humor aligns with what I say on the channel. Um, even the growth and development over time. Like, there's an early video of mine where I dropped the R-bomb, which is a thing that I don't do anymore because I just, I've, I've grown and learned that that's not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And there's reasons for that. So, honestly, yeah, I think I'm very, very similar. But I do play it up. Like, a low. So I've had videos go out where people are like, you seem low energy. Where it's probably more me. Where I've just played mm-hmm. the game of Magic more chilled. When I've had a more chilled out like late night or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when I'm, when I'm trying to make a video funny, I will shout more. I will be more silly and I will inject more comedy into it. Because that's kind of what you do. But yeah, ultimately, I think... We are one and the same. Even the idea of referring to Pleasant Kenobi as not me is foreign and weird to me. Doing it now mm-hmm. feels weird. I am Pleasant Kenobi. Pleasant Kenobi is Vince. It's just, just another name for me, I guess. I actually don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you are essentially a magic celebrity at this point. You have a very sizable <laughs> Patreon following, YouTube following, social presence. And it sounds like some of your fans or patrons or however you want to call them, they have maybe certain expectations for how you should be because you you mentioned like okay they maybe they think you're low energy in this video and maybe that's just because you're not turned up to 11 like turning up to 11 is still you uh, you know i don't don't yeah, get me yeah. wrong but do you feel challenged sometimes that maybe people outside of uh, just people watching your content like they expect you to be a certain way yeah 100 percent. like so Sometimes when I go to... Normally, I absolutely love streaming, but there's rare occasions when I've had a bad day where I'm like, wow, I've got to go and be quite excitable on stream now. But then even then, I think I've put up an expectation that sometimes I may be more downbeat. We had a bad stream recently because um we I buried a friend recently. We had a funeral that I had to go to. Mm. And the stream of the night after, or the night before, I can't remember which way around it was, I definitely was in a sour mood, and it was definitely because of that. And mm. I just explained that to the viewers and stuff. I explained it in my videos. Um, I'm very, very open. When I lost my mother, I was very open that I'm going to be gone for a week. And when I come back, I, you know, I don't want your mum jokes and things. I'm just, uh, I guess yeah. I, I've, I've been very good at being honest with people from the beginning. So it's not jarring when I, I'm also like, when I lose game magic on stream sometimes as well, I can be quite salty. Not like at my opponent, like well played, they did what they need to do. And I try and promote that as well, like not to be angry at people. But I will like cuss and I will swear and I will I will get a bit salty and be like, oh, come on, magic. 
and that's oh, you just, mean like again, frustrated at yourself or at the yeah or myself something. or just I mean I mean again the shuffle like we all like anthropomorphize the, the the shuffler so we can blame it but <laughs> yeah. it's that's complete bollocks as well isn't it yeah, but yeah. um yeah I would just get frustrated and angry but again don't direct that at anyone but frustration is real so I guess I'm so upfront with it that it doesn't really surprise or shock people but like like I said there maybe the people who only see it on YouTube and don't talk to me on Twitter and don't talk to me on Discord and don't talk to me on Twitch. They might see a slightly more mediated version of me, or if they've only watched a couple of videos, if they're completely new to it, and they're the ones that are like this is low energy and stuff. But I don't find it too hard. Um, yeah, I think my, my my communities. I think I've been lucky with my community, and I think I've done well to grow a community that has realistic expectations of me for the most part, and I can be very very honest with them as well. So that helps a lot with that. I'd also love to talk a bit about that. So this is time. This is maybe time for a little anecdote of my own. I think the one of the first times we met, actually it was in LA, but I got to talk to you again at at London. I think it was Magic Fest London. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember you, you know, I think there were some of your patrons or some of your fans and you were just hanging out with them. And I think you were playing multiplayer commander or whatever it was. I guess it doesn't really matter, but it just looked like you guys were having a lot of fun and it was very laid back and casual. And it's not only that, but when I see you, your interactions on Twitter, I feel like you're really tuned in to, you know, jokes and conversations, and you actually have high quality back and forth with people who are fans of yours. So, you know, to give you an example, sometimes people have huge amount of Twitter followers, but no one's actually, they're not, no one's actually interacting with anything they're tweeting. Whereas I feel like whenever you tweet something or you respond to something, you're getting like high quality interesting funny things so i feel like basically what i'm trying to say vince is that i get the sense that you have a very strong rapport with your community or your tribe so tell me a little bit about that like how did you develop that over time was it something that was there since day one or did you have to work at it like i want to know that how that went for you i i think i ignored the conventional logic of don't read the comments and i always read the comments and i often get down in the trenches with the comments so from the earliest, the moment people started responding to my videos, like I said about like the Mono Red Tron one, for example, even the Gamergate one, I tried to engage back with people, but that was kind of fruitless. Um, I I like people, and I like conversation, and I like talking, as people might have noticed. And I do also like listening. Like, to hear someone else's perspective is very, very good. And sometimes if you just stop and pause, you might realise that actually you're on the, on, the, on the wrong path in terms of like a, like a, a line of logic or understanding. Um... So engaging with people and talking to people is great and I love it and that's probably why I've been doing it since the very beginning. The problem I've... And, and that's helped as well, and especially in person, it's much easier because you haven't got like, you know, a hundred comments more, like a, a handful of people at a time. Uh, I feel guilty. I feel guilty when I can't engage with someone on a one-on-one basis at a Magic Fest or a GP or whatever because those people are what I owe my livelihood to. They're the people watching my videos, subscribing on Twitch, helping me out on Patreon. So I owe those people at least something, right? The problem I guess I face now and what a close friend of mine has been saying to me who I talk a lot about shop and content with is that I engage back a lot and I respond to a lot of Twitter and comments and, and people, but I'm getting sl- just about getting to that size where that's becoming quite time intensive and quite energy intensive. And sometimes people don't have the best interest at heart when they're just con- having a conversation on the internet as well. It's not a back and forth. It's more of a you're wrong and I'm not here to really listen or talk or discuss or, or pose a counterpoint that might be valid. Um, but I still engage with those people. Uh, so up until now, it's been very, very, very good and very, very positive. And the majority of my interactions have been very, very fun. Um, 
and only more recently have I felt perhaps I need to dial it back a little bit, or at least oh, I feel. But then, but then, like I said about the guilt about not making the Mimi videos, I start to feel guilty that I haven't like you know given someone the light of day. I think everyone deserves some light of day, right? And the other thing as well is that I've been criticised a little bit of engaging with people who are perhaps acting in bad faith, as people put it, mm -hmm. around political issues or not even political issues, just like a, a statement in a video that I'll make. If I say everyone in betwixt and someone makes some comment about gender. Mm -hmm. And I've got this. Pers I've got a perspective that the moment you have any size of platform, you aren't responsible for the people that follow you necessarily, but there's a responsibility to at least engage with them or try and push people towards the, and I, I use the term lightly, correct direction. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I try and... How do I put this? Engaging with people means that people are more likely to listen to you. And I think engaging even with the people who are being shitty can help people to go oh do you know what maybe he's got a point maybe i should respect other human beings or give them a chance or whatever because sometimes you just engage in the problem with youtube comments is like you've got 14 year old kids who haven't had the time to grow or develop an understanding yet right if we just silence them or ignore them or it's just a game they just want to troll or they just want to they just want I mean, to yeah them. and and they're and they're the dangerous ones because if you're just engaging with a troll that's not going to get anywhere so there are, so i agree there are trolls now people playing games and sometimes you can tell and those one of the best features of YouTube is you can hide a user. So if I see a comment where I'm like, if someone's just throwing slurs or or criticizing something that, or, or not criticizing, or just examples throwing slurs, I will just, they, they get muted indefinitely. They're shadow banned. So they can still comment. They don't know they're banned, but they, they can't be seen anymore because they aren't adding anything valuable to the conversation. But if right. someone, but if you can engage with people that aren't trolling, and that's the difficult part, and that's the mentally taxing part, and that's a bit I'm saying where maybe I need to step back a little bit now. But if you can engage with like, we had a, okay, I'm going to give you an anecdote. I won't say any names. We had a kid who was incredibly transphobic in a in a, in a call, in a group chat on my Discord. Because sometimes I play League of Legends with fans, of fans, viewers, Discord members. Sometimes I will play uh, EDH with them on very occasion. Or just, mm -hmm. we, we once had a, in inverted commas, voice orgy. It was like, everybody get in here. And we opened up a voice channel and we had like a like hundred people almost in there, just all chatting, complete nonsense. It was mad. But it was fun. Mm -hmm. Um... So in this call, this kid says some very transphobic comments, and I call him out on it because it's just... Not, I won't go into full details because I don't want to, but I call him out on it. And eventually I'm like, well, you're going to have to leave because if, you, if you're going to be like this, you can't be here. And then I see another prominent community member also call out the same person. They, they blanked out the name in the profile picture, but I saw a corner of the profile picture and I recognised it. And so this person ended up deleting their Twitter and disappearing, this person who had been transferred on the Twitter, on, 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 the, on the Discord. And then we fast forward... A little while and they come back and one of my admins is like they're back by the way i'm like okay i'll chat to them and they claim and so far it's been true to the word that that being called up myself and being called up as other community member for the, the the crap things they were saying the horrible things they were saying made them go away and perhaps like um soul search a little bit and they're like mm -hmm. they're like 17 18 right and they said they come from a part of america where their, their parents say horrible things they knew no better and it was being introduced even just called out and introduced these other ideas that made them go you know what perhaps there is another side to this and they came back like three or four months later and they said they, they feel very differently to how they felt before and they want to make wrong right for the wrongs they've done mm -hmm. and so that is a good example or the best example i've got of someone who was definitely they weren't trolling they just had a they just had a very narrow worldview and if we just ignore them or don't engage with them or have a conversation with them then how do they ever know any better? You can't know what you haven't been told, right? Mm -hmm. So, but that, that isn't obviously what you were asking. You were asking more along the lines of 
chat and engage with people. I just love chatting to people and having and you know engaging with people. But I think that's one of the real big positives of being down in the trenches of like which can be a cesspit sometimes. The comment section can be a cesspit. Twitch chat can be a cesspit, right? <laughs> but yeah. sometimes there are there are people to be saved or to be but maybe I'm an idealist and that's not what you can always do. Well, I really I really love your answer because you, I, I don't know, maybe it's because of my personal background. I'm not going to get too much into this because I want it to be more about you. But I often have guilt over certain things as well. You had touched on, you know, you might not feel good if you didn't get back to somebody who, you know, appears to yeah. be somebody acting in good faith or whatnot. So I, I just want to kind of explore that a little bit. How did you... Where, where do you think that comes from? Because I think there are some people that are little, are more like, I don't care. You know, I'm not going to respond to any comments at all. But obviously you do care and you do want to get back to people. So how do you think that came about? Like it must have been before you were a content creator, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, I feel like I've always been a relatively empathetic person. But I don't Where does that come from? I don't know. I'm just a very much... I like to be treated how... I like to treat others how I'd like to be treated. And if I leave a comment and someone replies to it, if I go into a Twitch chat and someone replies to it, I mean, I, I get it now because Magic players tend to know who I am and stuff. But, like, before that, if I was on the Twitch chat and some, a streamer responded to me, like, the, the positive buzz was is immense, right? Like, it's great to actually have a conversation with somebody. But prior mm. to content, I don't know. I guess maybe it does harken back a little bit from school and things where, like, I want everyone to like get on and be included. And I, like I said, there, there were instances where I was like bullied by the more popular guys and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, and by, that's why I'm, I'm very anti-bullying, but who isn't, who's like, you know, of a, of a sound mind. So may, maybe it comes from that. Maybe it's, I think inclusiveness breeds nothing but positivity, right? In terms of like, even the, even the sense that I'm saying to be inclusive of shitlords to try and sway them towards, you know, th- thinking of it better. Yeah. But um, it's hard to place exactly where it originates from. Sure. And I'm, I'm just curious. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that it sounds like it's become a bit of a balancing act for you because you said you reached a point where this may not scale very well if, you, if you're the one person who's... I mean, obviously, you don't have assistants who are like, oh, let's, let's uh, reply to all these uh, comments on behalf of Pleasant Kenobi or something like that. So, yeah. You, you know, you, you do mention that you you sort of reached a, the point where it could be bad for your sanity or your your mental health or whatever, you, however you want to describe it. So, like, do you do you think about that and how to manage it better going forward? I, I not really. This is this is some of the 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 uncharted territory of content creation in some ways. Like, I think we're, we're such an early early days of this sort of stuff that we don't we obviously often it's talked about about you know your mental health and your sanity when it comes to commenters and Twitch chat and stuff, you know, sub-only modes and stuff like that. But ultimately, no, I don't think anyone's really cracked the code, as it were. Like, I feel like the engagement that I give in my comment sections and, and on Twitter and, and in, in Twitch is, is definitely part of the success that I've had because people come back to engage with those things or feel included, and that's what I want. But how do I monitor that? Or how do I do that moving forward i don't know like i would i don't think even if i had a team of people making content for me in some sort of loading ready run-esque network i don't think i'd ever want people like responding to comments on behalf of me because you never know when someone's going to miss the mark and then you can't really Mm. own that you don't know if someone's gonna yeah so honestly i don't think i have a future for that that's part of the uncertainty 
the future is so uncertain within this industry in general, right? Because it's just we are in uncharted territory. We are in a completely like new media age. So no, I don't have anyone to who leads by example that I can I can pick on. I don't have there's no president. It's just a precedent. Sorry, there's just yeah, it's 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 hard. I, I'm wondering if you have ever talked to other content creators before about yeah how to manage it and you know maybe some of the things that they have given you maybe as perspective slash advice. Like well, I mean I. Like to not not to call them out too much, but me and Krim had this conversation at length in in London, caring about numbers, statistics, and comments. And he told me he doesn't look at any of them. Or this care is about Krim, any of them. the Asian Avenger. The right? Asian Avenger, that's right. He doesn't, he doesn't look or care about any of them. But then on this the episode of this podcast that I listened to, he talked about how he has to. He does read the comments. So no. I think even people who say they don't. No, do. anyone that says they don't read the comments <laughs> is lying. So I'll, I'll just yeah. put that out there. Yeah, exactly. But like, um, I've got other friends who make content. Um, in other like um, niches that are saying they might even remove themselves from Twitter because it's just a, a minefield of trolls and provocation and like people taking sides and you know like the, the conversations around getting cancelled if you say the wrong thing and stuff but I don't have any of those fears I, like I said I just don't think anyone's cracked the code so even when I, I I take on board what people say and I listen like I think what Krim said about not caring about numbers has some merit definitely um, but yeah it's it's one of those things that over time i'm gonna have to just deal with the other thing as well is i feel like i'm a grassroots creator like i never feel like i'll be a studio as such or anything like that that's never going to be a plan i'm very much like i i guess i i i model myself on old grassroots youtube in some ways like i'm going to use names of creators that people kind of hate because they're they're way too edgy and said some really dumb stuff but like how how like the pewdiepies got started or the filthy franks or the idubs you know it's one guy doing his thing Mm. And inviting people along for the ride. Now, my personal politics don't align with those people, but I do admire the 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 craft of being a one man band in a sense. And for me, part of that one man bandism or one man banding or whatever banding, way um, <laughs> banding, that, yes, yes, yes we mentioned banding. I, I meant to mention it. There you go. I dropped it in. Um, is that engaging with people? I mean, they're bad examples again because I don't think they engage with people either because they're just so big and huge and stuff. But, like, engaging with people helps to, I don't know, understand what people think of your content and stuff. So I, I guess I'll never stop. But I guess mm. I'm just going to have to do it less and less and, and pick where I do it, I guess. I think it's tough because not even in content creation, but society sort of, how, how do I put it? We get to where we are today because of what we did and who we are. And then sometimes other people in society then expect us to do a 180 and be like, you know, what got you here? Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the CEO who did it this, this way their, their whole career. And then now they're saying, why didn't you reinvent the business to, to do that? And, you know, how did you not see this coming? Well, because their whole life was based on their whole success has always been based on this. So it's, well, I mean, I've, got, how, I've got that. I've got you that disrupt yourself. You know, I've got that twofold. I've got one is my swearing and profanity and like lewdness. Like it's mm. just part of who I am and what I do. But I, I undoubtedly believe there's two, there's two problems with that one sponsorships. Like as I grow and look for other ways to like supplement my income and help with things. Like, I, I'd love to get an editor on board eventually uh, to help with some of my, my workflow that would cost money and therefore sponsorship would help. But I know that some sponsors will just turn around and be like, sorry, you said the F-bomb on Twitter like three days ago. You said fuck, so no go there. And then the other thing is the the being outspoken about how much I... How, about, pol- invert commas, political issues. But that be literal pol- politics like Brexit and uh, the Tories and the current election that's coming up in the UK. Or would that be what people call political issues that are really just things that happen in life, you know, like gender politics and stuff. 
some again brands or some people might think that that's going to be damaging for me to keep doing that but i don't think i can ever stop doing those things because they're very me and i'm very mm -hmm. much in part of the brand i guess if those things become like things i shouldn't be doing then i guess i'm even gonna have to look at this as more of a job and not part of my i'm not like because although it's my job it's also just me being me in my life as it were right i don't know so th th those are two things very much like you just said where like i might have to or people will tell me i might have to moderate those things in future but i don't really want to <laughs> Yeah. Things, well, they're not hurting anyone. If anything, I think they're improving people's lives, especially in the politics angle. You know, I don't know. One thing I do admire about you is that you do speak your mind because you you, you don't. I mean, I can't I can't be you and put myself in your shoes exactly, and I don't understand all the ramifications of the the impact or blowback or however you want to call it. But I I like seeing somebody who is genuine because you know, like I I was actually telling a friend the other day, like. I don't want to be passive aggressive. I want to be active aggressive. If I if I don't like you, I want to just tell you. I don't want to beat around the bush, you know. You know, I, I like the fact that you are willing to talk about Brexit and things that are surrounding you. And in this conversation, I learned like th that was a huge part of what you are. Like the reason why you're not a teacher today is because these things are happening around you and you do you do yeah. give a shit. So so how do you I don't this is not even a question, but I, I just admire that, you know? And and I I think not enough people are able to do that, but you put yourself out there. I th well, we have a responsibility. I, th I touched this earlier. Like we have a responsibility. When I was in when I was in Seattle, I had this conversation a lot with people like um, Kessler from uh, the the Master um, Modern podcast. We talked about this at great length. That like we have a responsibility as soon as you have some sort of audience to at least get people to engage with politics, whether or not it be the same stuff that you do, but getting people to vote, for example. And then the conversation sways for me that my viewership is only like twelve percent English or UK. English for the top of the UK. So should I be trying to promote people to go out to the polls in America or go out to the voting stations in America and stuff like that more? But um, yeah, that's, that's just a responsibility. Like not not necessarily like that you're like people's actions, but at least to get people engaging. Like I, I, people say they don't want politics in their games, but just if I can get you to just for one moment think about how austerity is damaging this country and upsetting, because it's a great thing that Hoogland says. Uh, where Jeff Hoogland says the only people uh, I'm, 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 I'm um, not quoting directly okay like paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing I'm paraphrasing yeah he says the people who don't want politics in their games are the people who have the privilege of not having to care about politics in their games so you might not want to want me to chat about how the Tory government is damaging the, the United Kingdom but you're not one of the people who's on the benefits that they're cutting or relies on the NHS that they're selling off or so on and so on and so on you know so yeah I don't think I can ever stop doing that Again, you can also. I also believe that if you don't agree with personal politics, as long as the, if you don't agree on politics and it's not it's not in a damaging way, you can move on, look past it. So if someone is a Tory voter and I'm a Labour voter, they guess arguably they can, that we can move past it. But then there are, I guess there's a point where you're like, <laughs> when it comes to like human rights, <laughs> you can't really look past someone else believing a different thing about human rights or like the existence of another human being, right? So. Sure. So yeah, there are some politics you can you can you can agree to disagree on whether you agree with like the European Union and Nigel Farage, but when it comes to like trans rights, that's not really a negotiable for me, I guess. And maybe that makes me sound militant and like the extreme left that people often sometimes accuse me of being, which is pretty funny. But but yeah, I think politics is important, and I think being quiet about it, I can understand why other creators might want to do that, and I get it because again, at the end of the day, it's our livelihoods. But um, mm -hmm. I I I can't sit by and just to be quiet about it and that probably goes back to like the stuff i've inherited from my mum right this is the equivalent of arguing in the workplace for me 
Yeah, only on a much more global scale, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. Yeah, it still doesn't make it. It still doesn't feel real when people engage with these comments that I make. Yeah. So, what's on the horizon for you, Vince? What are some things that you are still trying to do? Can you share a little bit about maybe goals if you have any? They could be short term,、yeah. they could be long term, they could be whatever、um, you want. But I just love to know. So, short term is I need to. I'm very comfortable in terms of paying my bills and everything now, but I need to expand my revenue streams a little bit to incorporate the idea of employing an editor, for example. Or、mm-hmm. just to up my game a little bit more in that sense, and that will allow give me more time back to make other very content too. And then, like the long term, the thing I'd love to have is like a team of sorts where I can have some people who guest on the channel and things. Like I, I hinted at loading ready one earlier, like being at the moon base at the pre pre release recently,、mm-hmm. made me think, oh god, how cool is this? How cool is this to have a group of creatives working together? But at the same time, I'd never want to lose the fact that it's my identity and me as a person. Um, so that would be a long-term goal. I'm not even sure if I want to go towards 100, but it's kind of like the pipe dream in the distance, right? But in the meantime, it's just、uh, getting an editor on board in the next like six months or so, and just growing the channel. I'm currently like about half, ah,、uh, 50,000 subs, just under. I want to get 100k by the end of next year, so I get like the cool plaque from YouTube. Sub, num- <laughs>、yep. sub numbers、yep. don't even matter. They don't even equate to like the money you're making or your growth or anything that's like important to your day-to-day life. But that plaque—it's just. Hey it's man, just, get the、um, plaque. Get it. Oh, I want it. I, I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get that bread. But the bread happens to be a, a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's that. Also, like, I, here's, a, here's a here's a very small mini goal. I'm not Twitch partner at the moment, and it, and this this is both this is a combination of the plaque thing, and、yeah. helping me to sustain my my life and. Um, support my family in the future because it does it does equate to income. I'm not a Twitch partner, and I stream like minimum of once a week, sometimes two to three times. My concurrent、mm-hmm. view is like two hundred and stuff. Like I'm doing all right over there. That's how I see it. That's a、but、pretty Twitch, good number. But Twitch、yeah. have turned me down twice, so I'm going to apply again in the next couple of weeks. After is that is that like a、system. chip on your shoulder thing where some of these milestones are just like you want to prove to yourself that you can hit it? Yeah, like I don't know. I just. It's funny because like you mentioned about me being a magic celebrity, and I don't feel like that. I still feel like the small fry, and I think I am the small. I still am the small fry when you compare my numbers to like Goldfish and and Channel Fireball and and the oh come on, but stuff, you're one you know? person. You just said you're a one man band. You're exactly, probably, like, and that's one of the and biggest <laughs> one man bands there are, right? So, yeah, me, how, me, I mean you're doing apples and oranges comparison. No, no, not necessarily. The Tellerian Community College is one hundred percent a one man band as well. Like he's very savvy and he set himself up to be a business, and I love Brian, but he's a, he's a one man band. And I and I admire that in him. Like he's doing,、uh-huh. he is still grassroots. He's not a studio. He's not producing a TV show. Like Game Nights in the Command Zone, that is a TV show, right? They are producing a TV show. That is a, a high show. budget production. Yeah, it is. It is super high quality. I love it. I think what they do is incredible. But it's it's not 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 necessarily even. It is on another level to what I'm doing, of course. But it's a whole different ball game, right? As、mm-hmm. I don't mean just in tears. I'm talking like. That is a thing that I don't think I'll ever do. I don't ever want to have a production studio and like interns and editors and sound designers and lighting and stuff like that. That that's not YouTube to me. That's TV, right?、Mm. And that's not that's not even that's not a value judgment. That is just like、yeah. a acknowledging a difference.、Mm-hmm. Um, I've lost my train of thought a little bit there. Well, we're just talking about goals, right? Oh,、so. goals, of course. So, yes, I still feel like the small fry. But I also use the excuse that I'm a one man band to be like, well, actually, I'm a one man band, so it gives me some defensive element, I guess. But yeah, it is a bit of a chip on my shoulder because like, I want to get partner and I want to get the the plaque and things to prove that this is real. When I go to I, I go to like the funeral recently or like weddings and people say, what do you do for a living? I'm, I'm a YouTuber. People never believe it. Absolutely never believe it. And 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 part of me. Why, why do you think they don't believe it though? Because it's so new and fresh and weird, and also. 
the perception of YouTubing and streaming is just so odd in the public eye, right? The only point of reference people have is like PewDiePie and Ninja, which are so they are they are not just board games; they are worlds apart in terms of like just uh, uh, size and scope and money compared to everyone else, right? And that's the only yeah. points of reference people have. Even people who watch YouTube regularly sometimes don't like have points of reference beyond that because they don't watch youtube like youtubers they'll watch just like recommended and stuff and things they search for so yeah. i think over time it'll become more real um but like I, I like when i was working at the bank before i went for when i was only part of the bank four days a week and one day a week youtube i met a guy who was getting a car loan who was a youtuber as well in my local town i was like what? and we were like you know the, the spider-man get the image with the two spider-man pointing at each other <laughs> it was like the, that like your YouTuber? youtubers right here <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and at the time he was bigger than me and i've now surpassed him in like subcat and stuff so the point is i guess part of me deep down is like i constantly nipping myself is this real do i really get to like play magic for a living and make videos and jokes for a living because it's it's a combination of not only all my hobbies and my loves from a, as a child but it's a combination of my like my longing to be creative as well so all of those things together it's, it's dreamlike that i get to do this so part of me is still doubting that it's real myself so i guess as i get a plaque uh, it's such a dumb thing. Even to say it out loud makes me feel stupid. But that plaque and the little blue tick on Twitch for the partnership and stuff. Yeah. Like all of the, I mean, I want to go to TwitchCon, but I don't... And this is a, I mean, I shouldn't say this necessarily, but I don't want to be a second-class citizen at TwitchCon, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with being affiliate, of course. I'm yeah. not saying that. I'm affiliate right now. But it's funny that Twitch makes such a massive divide to make... Almost make affiliates feel bad. Like, it's part of the carrot on a stick, right? <laughs> if you go to TwitchCon, you want to... Totally. Be I mean, somebody was crying on the stage at TwitchCon when they gave him partner, like, live, you know? And so I understand how important it is. And and, and part of me hates that because... Uh-huh. The, twi- the, twi- the TwitchCon def- distinction. Like, if you're there with a partner badge or someone's got an affiliate badge... It just seems kind of tragic that everyone's there to like celebrate yeah, streaming it's like, and it's Twitch like culture. the cool kids versus the people that can't exactly. Get into that party. It's like it's like clicks, and I I hate yeah. that, but at the same time I want to be the cool kid. <laughs> you hate was, that, but you crave it. I mean, you gotta you gotta work within the machine or the system, that's right? Ex- exactly. There's no responsible Twitch streaming under capitalism, right? So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So um, yeah, they're my short term goals, and long term is to 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 grow and expand the channel, but. To, just to put an extra like caveat on that it's weird like imagine i, I think it's the future of like how much content can you realistically put out like i put out four to five videos a week let's say i get up to seven videos that's a week that's insane you're a one like, one person show like that's insane it, it yeah. is but then i feel guilty when they're they're easier to make videos but i can't put out the meme plays like five of those a week but maybe if i put five of those out a week and that'll be the way to super success but then you run out of time like not only your yeah. time but like i i put up a two-hour edh game yesterday then i put up a two-hour stream vod this morning and someone on my discord was like i haven't even watched the edh video yet and i'm like i know i'm really sorry but if i don't put these videos up like where do they go <laughs> you're like, apologizing for having having too much content yeah and then interesting i'll have like a three minute video that goes up tonight and then i'll have another 10 minute video tomorrow and probably a half an hour video on saturday and and like i get it even the people who are die hard vince pleasant can i be uh, the term's funny, but fans will struggle to watch all of that. So, what? And then Twitch streaming too. People can't sit and watch Twitch streaming. So, so there's all this idea of growing and expanding. But I'm like, how much content can you realistically make? Maybe I need to dial it back and focus on making top quality three videos a week as opposed to so much content, right? But does YouTube want that? And that's that's my future. My future's uncertain and crazy. And I'm like, am I doing the right thing? I don't even know. YouTube won't even tell me. And that that's my future. <laughs> this uncertain <Is> it- clamber. <laughs> 
is it stressful for you or is it something else it's stressful sometimes it's stressful in a bad way the majority of the time it's stressful in a good way and i can't complain the, the highs of putting up a video and having like my, my bare minimum is i want my videos to get ten thousand views and that's that's small fry for youtube right but when ten thousand people watch a video and then you get like 300 comments and people are telling you like engaging and having counterpoints or or, or giving you input on your deck, or like saying this joke was funny, or saying, "Huh, I went to that shop once," and just that engagement, that 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 high is better than any of the stress. But to answer mm. your question, yeah, of course it's stressful because we, we it's an uncertain industry where things aren't clear. Like I don't even know how I get partner apart from proving that my community is still there in three weeks or something. YouTube algorithms could change tomorrow. YouTube could decide that card games aren't profitable for sponsors and just drop me out of the recommended tabs. You know, like. There's so many, it's almost, it's, I, I joked to Brian, the professor, about how we are, we are the shaman of the modern day. We're like, we've got, a, we've got like a pot of like tea leaves and bones and we're sort of like hovering our hands over the top. We're pretty good shaman from the looks of things because we're doing all right, right? Yeah. But like, ultimately, do we really know what the bones mean? Or the, the signals in the clouds that, that YouTube, that YouTube is just a, 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 a not so benevolent God that doesn't really care about us. <laughs> Yeah. The absurdism. The absurdism. I think that's a skull in the tea leaves, but I'm not sure. Let's go with that, right? <laughs> Let's say that there was somebody who is getting into content creation for the first time. Let's just say that it's their first year, right? What kind of advice would you give to them? Um. Uh. Try. Okay. So. So. Try. This is what I say to everyone all the time: is that try and make something that is new and fresh and original, because. Everyone, especially Magic as well, everyone's making deck techs and gameplay videos right nowadays, especially with Arena. You need to do something that, like, that is fresh and original and gives a, a reason for someone to watch and then come back and watch again. But the, the problem you have nowadays with content creation, and I struggled with this initially, is like how you promote yourself. You can make the best videos in the world. You can make literally the best videos in the world, but if no one knows they exist, how is anyone going to watch them? So also don't be shy about asking people to share your videos. And sharing them around a little bit yourself. But again, that's frowned upon. I got I got shadow banned from a Facebook group last week for sharing a video. Because apparently it's bad to self-promote. Um, so make something that's unique. And don't be afraid to self-promote. If, if your content's good enough. And I would also recommend don't self-promote your first videos. Because your first videos are going to suck. <laughs> my first videos sucked. Like my first videos from my first year sucked. Also, the other thing is. Don't worry about tech. Like, this is the thing I see as well. People, like, trying to buy Elgato capture cards and high-end Oh, yeah, let's get the best audio and... quality and video quality, but you don't you don't need that right now. You're yeah, it's still absolute to, to bollocks. Walk, right? like, like, use the tech you've got to learn. Like, Casey Neistat is one of the biggest YouTubers in the world, and he has a video where he talks Love about... Love Casey Neistat. Yeah, me yeah. too. I, I find him quite inspirational in, like, where he's come from. Again, he came from a very poor background. He proved people wrong that he could do this. Um... But he says all you need is a story to tell, an internet connection, and a video and a, and, a, and a phone. Sorry, and a phone, because yeah. you don't necessarily need a DSLR. It helps to up your game and improve your quality and and like you know refine your craft. But if you have a smartphone and an internet connection, you can you can vlog, and it won't be the best thing to start with, like I said. And don't necessarily share the video around massively if you think it's not your best content or the best content out there. But just start creating and refining and and honing and. You know, re reiterating that craft will help you to improve it. And so that's all I've done is I've self-taught myself editing and everything through just making a lot of videos, I guess. And again, on like uh, free software and like a crap camera that I bought for like real cheap from like Argos that 
any self-respect how, how many YouTube videos did you make before you felt like you hit the groove um what, hundreds maybe like i'm I, i'm gonna look at my total youtube count of videos now if it's easily i'm, I'm glad you said that because if you just said you know i i became amazing after five videos then uh a i wouldn't really believe you and b that wouldn't be very actionable so this That's, is actually that, a good answer. that is complete nonsense though and you, you see i don't think anyone will ever tell you that i for a while, I listened to a lot of podcasts around YouTube content creation and stuff of all different walks uh -huh. of life. There's a, there's a podcast called, um, I think it's the YouTube Creators Hub, perhaps. I'd have to double check what it is. But they're really good for like just talking to like a photographer YouTuber and then like a like a horror film YouTuber and all this sort of stuff. They often say, and I heard it from so many people, that you just make a lot of bad videos at first and videos to like, like get traction. Like Not everyone is Spice 8 Rack who just put out like incredible content straight away. But again, like, if you see someone putting out straight, incredible content straight away, that's probably because A, they've put out content before on a different account and they've hidden it. Or B, they're getting a lot of outside help from other YouTubers and people who know what they're doing. Um, so don't don't believe the hype. Just okay. uh, get started and refine your own craft. What would you tell the younger Vince if you had a time machine you could go back five years? What would you tell him? Oh... Five years ago. Yes. <laughs> We've got to this weird point where, like, when this question was asked of me, like, earlier on when I started getting some traction, I would say, oh, go back and start YouTube earlier. But now I've been making videos for about five years. Like, yeah, I was at the bank for five years. So I, so I can't go back and be like, Vince, start YouTube earlier, because that was when I started. <laughs> so that's interesting. So I'm going back to Vince, who's just joined the bank, and he feels like a complete failure, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. I guess I'll go back and say, A, perseverance. Like, do not give this up. Uh, throw yourself into it a, a little bit harder, but don't don't give up the financial stability of your current job or anything like that. Make sure you're you're set before you, you do that. And B, I would probably give the advice I just gave, so maybe that's a good, a good uh, sense check to see if it's correct, of do something different. Because my early days was a lot of copying other YouTubers and stuff. Which isn't a bad way to start because you, you again, it helps you to refine and, and, and hone your craft, I guess. But I would have gone back to him and said, look, do something that's different to what other people are doing right now. Um, maybe after your first dozen videos, though. First of all, get used to the editing software and how a microphone works and what sort of jazz. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's that, it's that um, making stuff stand out from the crowd. How did you figure out exactly when to cross into full-time content creation? I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to ask this, but it seems kind of appropriate in the context of this question yeah how did you go from that job at the bank to diving headfirst or feet first into doing this full-time so i didn't think i'd ever necessarily be able to make it full-time until one day i got an email from some uh software developer gentleman who was like look i want you to make more dnt content can i give you four wish on port on entergeo and at this point those cards were like uh, almost a hundred dollars. So it's like four hundred dollars with a card, digital cardboard, because because wizards wouldn't reprint the damn thing. And I was making videos about that as well. And I was like, uh, sure, but like, what do you want in exchange for this? And are, are you sure? And they were like, well, look, I was I've been trying to give you Patreon money for the last couple of months, but then I realized you don't have any way to you don't have a donation button, you don't have a Patreon button. So let me give you this as my Patreon for the last you know however many months I've been watching your content. So. We did a Google Hangout and a trade, and they gave it to me, and they said they didn't want to be named, and I still appreciate it to this day, because they, they, they changed my outlook on things. I was like, Jesus Christ, this person wants to put finance into making my content better. So I made a Patreon, and the Patreon was quite successful straight away. 
I was I was overwhelmed by how successful it was. So then me and my wife put down a goal of a set amount that I can get to because then it would it would basically substitute my bank income. Mm-hmm. And we said at that point then we will sit down, make sure that everything's set. Because obviously I've got to set up a pension and tax and all that. So my wife's very uh, financially savvy because she works in uh, payroll for her company. And then we'll decide to go whether I go full time or not. And then uh, we set like a, and then I got to that quite quickly. And I was like, okay, well let's set this date and make sure that it's sustainable. So it doesn't all just disappear overnight and I've completely, you know, dropped the ball or whatever. And then my wife went away for a business trip to America, came back, and she had been talking about YouTubing and what her husband does to these American co-workers. And they'd, they'd hit her with all these Americanisms. They'd been like, don't let your dreams be dreams. you got to grab life by the balls. And all these, like, very American-sounding, like, <laughs> confident, just go for yeah. it. And she was like, you know what? Maybe they've got a point. Maybe you should. So that was, like, in the, the October of last year. We were planning to sit down in January and make the final decision. So I went in at the very end of October, beginning of November, and on the 3rd of November it was, and I said to my boss, um, can I put my notice in? And he was like, of course you And my boss was so supportive. He loved my YouTube channel. He got into, he, he collected coins. He got into collecting magic cards because he like was watching my YouTube stuff. <laughs> Just collecting, buying and selling on eBay. Wow, um, very supportive, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so he loved it. And I saw him recently at like a gathering thing, and he, he's been following, like, he, he loves it. He's such a good guy. And he was like, yeah, let's put it in. And then I put my notice in. So, I made sure I was financially stable. I made sure we could afford like a pension to replace the pension that I had at the company. I made sure that we could afford um, to pay the tax and so on and so forth. I made sure to reach out to like uh, getting sponsorships and stuff at that point as well to to make sure that my income was diversified. So if Patreon ever went like down the down the can, uh, there would be other incomes coming in because YouTube doesn't pay a huge amount. YouTube is like one of my smallest revenue streams because. Gone are the days we can make a ton of money on YouTube because how the, the, the adpocalypse and stuff, right? Um, yeah. So I'm, we made sure I was financially stable and then we made the jump. And I would say that to anyone. Like, just quitting your job to pursue YouTube or streaming, some people say that's a viable thing, but I, I, I think for the vast majority it's not and you're just going to you're gonna hurt yourself. Sounds like your wife was a huge catalyst and just, in general, very, very supportive of what you wanted to do, right? yes like i thought like i hesitated there yes for like 95 percent. so she was very supportive when i quit um teaching during my time at the bank i became a mortgage advisor for a while but i was very bad at the organization of compliance documents so i kept getting like compliance fails on like how documents were written not the advice part of the financial part i was very good with that but so i, I decided to change like job while in the bank and that was like another career i'd failed both of these things felt like failures massive failures to me because being a teacher or a mortgage advisor sounds so prestigious and exciting and stuff. Not exciting. <laughs> Neither of them sound exciting. They sound like the sort of thing that your parents can be proud of, right? Sure. Um, uh, reputable profession. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I'd failed these two things, but she was very supportive in them. Like, you know, it's just not for you. Do other things. And then I moved to another role in the bank, which I was relatively successful in. Um, she was supportive in those. And she was very supportive in getting my finances in order. And she nags me about getting my finances in order. But um, she was just the only 5% where she wasn't. And she is very supportive. I love her and I, I wouldn't be where I am without her. But she was just sceptical of YouTube and sceptical yeah. of content creation. It comes back to that thing I said about weddings where you, you tell someone what your job is and they just look at you like you're like you're from Mars or you're talking yeah, to Yeah, like you're nonsense. an astronaut or something. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> yeah. or like they think you're pulling their leg, right? Because obviously I come yeah. across as quite a jokey person. They're like, is this like a bit? I'm like, no, this is not a bit. I generally make videos on the internet. Um, she was just like very like and she's also incredibly cautious she is risk adverse like on a scale of 1 to 10 10 being super risk adverse I'd place her like a 9.5 
where I'm way further down the scale than that. So mm. she was like, you know, we need to make sure this works. And even now she's like, I still, is this, is it all going to tumble down like a house of cards? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> maybe, maybe, Hope but I, but I'm pretty good at yeah. keeping this house of cards propped up. So let's just, yeah. uh, let's just bide with it. So she's incredibly supportive, but also she's a skeptic. And I think that skepticism has helped in many ways because it made sure that we were financially stable before, before I took any plunges or dives or anything. Yeah, I think you need that balance in a relationship or a marriage, right? You need you can't have you 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 don't want to be married to someone who's exactly like you. No, exactly. Well, exactly. We are yin and yang, uh, opposites attract yeah. from that. Like I'm an extrovert, um, extrovert. Sorry, she's an introvert. I'm very loud at parties. She's very quiet. She's reserved. I'm not. Um, so, uh, and then like the viscous version to non-viscous version, and so on and so on and so on. Like we are, yeah, we complement each other very very well. That's great. So Vince, I'm gonna leave you with one last question. What's something that you're holding on to right now, like a thought or a belief that if you could go forward five years into the future, what would you tell the Vince five years into the future so that he would hold on to what you're holding on to right now? I guess it's not forgetting where you come from. I don't think I ever will, but it's something that I always think about is that I I got to spend some time with some much bigger YouTubers at the Magic Celebrity Cup that Wizards put together. And one of them is really quite big and is involved with some other big YouTubers and stuff. And I said to him, do you ever get used to this? Of people being excited to meet you or talk to you or get you to sign stuff? And he was like, yeah, it's, I've been doing it for 10 years now. It's second nature. And I thought to myself, and I said to them directly, I said, I don't think I ever will. I've only been doing full-time for a year. I've only had some success for maybe two and a bit, maybe three. And it still all feels completely unreal. And I feel like that will always be the case because I'll always be... I'll always be that young Vincent Chandler whose parents had no money and were selling things on car boot sales to, 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 to buy the next game secondhand or whatever six months after it was out. So to now be financially stable and have a wife and a, and a, and a house being mortgaged and looking to having kids and supporting that all through like content creation is just absolutely wild. And I don't think I'll ever take that for granted, but if I go five years into the future and find that I was taking it for granted, I'd give myself a proverbial slap and be like, I thought you said you'd never forget this. I thought you'd never get used to this. I thought you'd never take it for granted now we have this in audio format i'll just make sure to <laughs> set a timer to send this clip to you five years later that's all, it's all it was <laughs> that, all part of my master I, plan I, I am an incredibly nostalgic person and if you did email me in five years with that that would uh as long as i don't change drastically to this you know like i'm saying i would love that because i i love looking i'm so nostalgic about like i'm just a nostalgic person that'd be incredible yeah, just be careful. Five years later, when you're an Uber partner and you're you have the Pleasant Kenobi Empire and you have you know like <laughs> you know twenty people working for you creating video creating five videos a day magic know, videos sponsored by McDonald's and stuff <laughs> sponsored by McDonald's. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we didn't get really into the food stuff. I, I'm assuming that uh, you know McDonald's is uh, acceptable to you. Uh, yeah, I quite like McDonald's. Um. Why? Do you like McDonald's? I like McDonald's. I, I think it's consistent. I like consistency. McDonald's, if you're listening, I, th- I think Pleasant Kenobi is looking for a sponsorship. <laughs> I'd much rather Greg's The Baker's. It's a British bakery. There's a big running joke that some on my Discord hate it. I, I quite like it. They just released <laughs> okay, like, Christmas festive bake. So yes, Greg's The Baker's. Hit me up. I'm, uh, I'm going to email them at some point and be like, come on, sponsor right. uh, an aspiring young streamer. There you go. 21-year-old aspiring young streamer looking for <laughs> sponsorship. Well, Vince, it's been such... A fun time talking to you and I think the beauty of this is that we didn't really know where the conversation was going but I enjoyed every bit of it and I hope you did as well 
Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I uh, look forward to hearing how this comes out with my rambling. <laughs> yeah, maybe some creative editing, maybe not. Once again, thank you so much for your time. I know you have a lot of videos and other stuff to get to. So uh, we'll, we'll see you around next time. Yeah, and don't forget, subscribe to Pleasant Kenobi on YouTube so I get my plaque. And uh, follow me over on twitch.tv forward slash Pleasant Kenobi as well. That's the important all thing. Right. Right? That's all I'm here for, John. It's just <laughs> James, sorry. It's just to, uh, John's my best mate. I have to soundbite this and just make sure to put it at the beginning. You know. No, no, cause... it's fine. We can promote at the end. We can promote at the end. <laughs> it's funny that I got annoyed at you and called you John because that's my, my main admin and one of my best mates that whenever I'm annoyed, I call him. I'm like, come on, John. So the moment I, I jokingly got annoyed with you, I, <laughs> I apologize. I know your name is not John. <laughs> it's okay. I can be whatever you want me to be. It's all good. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>